What happens when you hold an expert's mock draft on Memorial Day? I'll ask Scott Pianowski about that and a whole lot more, next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host, from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, June the 10th. It's show number 22 of the 2022 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we do have another great Friday full edition for you. We'll have our feature expert interview with Scott Pianowski from Yahoo Sports, discussing his fantasy year to date, lessons from the Tout Wars Memorial Day mock draft, a bunch of players including Julio Rodriguez and Tariq Skubal, and a very quick Stanley Cup update, as well as his boons and banes. We'll have our Market Watch player news reports. Harold Nichols has coverage of the National League, including a couple of catchers leaving their lineups, Steven Strasburg's return to action, and the crowd forming in the Pittsburgh outfield. And Ray Murphy has news from the American League, including Joe Adele's latest return to L.A., Kike Hernandez going to the I.L., Gabe Moreno's big league debut, and more bullpen guesswork in Tampa and Boston. We'll also have our regular commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the frequent flyer, Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky looks at Minnesota's second baseman, Spencer Steer. And in extra innings, I'll be talking about part two of the five trading types you'll meet in fantasy baseball. It's another Big Friday full edition. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? An expert's draft on Memorial Day? We gotta talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Friday full edition, it's part one of our feature expert interview with Scott Pianowski from Yahoo Sports. Scott, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thank you so much for having me, Patrick. It's uh, it's always fun to talk to you. How many drafts are you playing this year? I'm in about seven or eight leagues, and it's it's been a mixed bag. I am um, have another bad Tout Wars team, which I take um, I take pride in that team, and it's I have not done well in that league for a few years, and I, I need to really look at why. Um, I have one of several contending teams in in a labor mixed league where I feels like ten teams could win. It's a really fun league, and, and that's a team I'm very excited about. I have a head to head team that's in first or second just about all season couple of different Yahoo leagues that are, are middle of the pack and we're rebuilding in one of my keeper leagues. Um, I have a good, not great um, team in the great fantasy baseball invitation. Yancey Eaton, the number one overall team is actually in my league. It's been fun to watch his team just dominate. He is one of the best. It's funny because he doesn't have a bunch of overwhelming guys, but his whole team has stayed healthy and he's just made a lot of profit plays. So that's been fun. That's, that's such a great format. I, you know, props to Justin Mason for running that. So, it's been an okay year. It's not going to be my best fantasy season. It's not going to be my worst fantasy season. Um, some of the players, some of the things I've gotten wrong, and I know we're going to talk about things, you know, lessons learned and, and regrets and stuff like that. I, I, I've seen some light at the end of the tunnel with some players, so I'm optimistic that if we were to have this discussion two months from now, maybe my portfolio would look better. But right now it's been kind of an ordinary year with, with some hit, some runs, some hits, and some errors. We have about a third of the season in the books. In hindsight, what do you think you did really well overall in this draft season? 
I thought I handled the closer market well. I thought I was patient. I thought I stayed away from a lot of the right guys to stay away from, Raulis Chapman primarily among them, but some other guys. And I thought I got some good values at the table. I picked up some decent saves during the season, which we know they always come into the league. Of course, they're competitively battled for, so you, you can't assume you're going to be the guy who gets them. But I thought that I did pretty well with that. I, one thing I got wrong is I think, at least I'm viewing this as something I got wrong, I put a lot of stock into where some of the hitters were slotted before the season. I, I think back to Jazz Chisholm, who was a player I liked uh, batting low at the beginning of the season. I was definitely out on Tommy Edmond. And I'm, I think on this podcast, I even like begged people not to draft Tommy Edmond, thinking new manager, he's going to start the season hitting ninth. He doesn't really have great on-base skills. I could see him not or I'm, I'm sorry, Ed, Edmund was um, going to start the season batting, maybe lead off, but I could easily see him not keeping that post. He doesn't have great on-base skills. And last year he needed the full volume of the season to be valuable. I, I thought he was just a trap and a really avoid player. And I got into a long argument with um, one of my co-managers in the league, Scott Gleason. He wanted to draft Dansby Swanson. I'm like, hey, he's buried in that lineup, and there's so many good hitters there. I don't know how he gets to the front of it. Now, fast forward to June. Chisholm's fine at the top of the order. Edmund has been one of the uh, really great fantasy values, a multiple position guy, and you know, he runs, and he he's, looks locked in at that leadoff spot. And Swanson has percolated to the top of the Atlanta lineup too. So I wonder if I overrated what batting real estate, maybe just bet on the talent. I still wouldn't have bet on Edmund because I didn't trust his OBP. But in the case of Chisholm and Swanson, they're two players who I generally like more, more Swanson. I'm sorry, more Chisholm than Swanson, but, I wonder if I maybe I put too much stock into the batting slots. And also a thing that's killing my Tout Wars team, and, and I, I'll probably have Julio Urias to talk about later when we talk about Boons and Baines, but my big pitching investments were Walker Bueller and Julio Urias. And with Bueller, I thought, okay, he's not dominant in strikeouts, but I thought he'd be one of the kind of like Porcello plus. You talk about like what Rick Porcello used to be, where it's like he's not a big strikeout guy, but he pitches so many innings, you're going to get strikeouts that way. I thought Bueller was maybe a really good version of that, a rich man's Porcello. And I think I just might've overrated how good he is in the case of Urias, man, I mean, with the velocity dipping and his strikeouts um, really in a bad place right now, he's got a cosmetic ERA. I think you can sell. He, he, one of the strongest things I'm going to try to give you today is if you can get out of the Julio Urias business, you might have to wait till he has a good start. I, I would try to do that. So I, I regret, I regret what I did with the LA pitchers. I regret, how I handled some of these batting slots. And uh, I think I did really well with the closer market. Um, but unfortunately, I don't think I have enough hits elsewhere to make it one of my better fantasy seasons. I was talking with somebody else about Walker Bueller, and they made the point that I think since 2018 or 2019, his strikeout percentage has declined every year. And the most recent decline, it was it used to be like a point here, then another point the next year, six points down this year from last. And of course, now people are worrying about was it the sticky stuff? Is he possibly hurt? Uh, is he just getting old and losing his losing his mojo? Is there something going on with the coaching? There's a lot of possibilities, but the end of, end result is Walker Bueller has disappointed his fantasy managers, including you. For sure. And the other thing that's really stressful about pitching when they struggle is, and you kind of alluded to it, we're always worried that they're hurt, right? I mean, I I know you guys, um, you were talking with Gene McCaffrey a couple of weeks ago and, you know, what's wrong with Jose Barrios. And then, of course, out of nowhere, he has a 13 strikeout game. I have no idea where that came from. And it, pitchers are just so funny because when they're going bad, it's just hard to feel good about them. 
and when and then you know they have a couple of good starts where, where things go right and then it's like okay you know, maybe they just tweak something maybe it was as simple as moving somewhere on the rubber or, or you're throwing from a different position or a different cat i mean there's so many different moving parts with pitchers but when they're not going well especially if there's any velocity dip or a major strikeout dip, you always worry that, okay, we're going to find out later after they've torched my ratio. I mean, Bueller's not killing me, but he's been a disappointment, but you're going to find out later. Okay. Yeah. My forearm's been barking since April. I just didn't tell anybody about it. I can explain the Jose Barrios 13 strikeout game. That was the first time since I've had him the last three years in tout. Uh, I traded him once, but uh, I had him on reserve this, this week, just for the very first time. I appreciate you being willing to do that for the greater fantasy good, right? I mean, you knew that there were Jose Barrios managers who needed him to step it up. So you thought I'll take the hit for the rest of the fantasy world. So it's very altruistic of you, Patrick. Yeah, it was, it was a two-star week. I didn't like either of the starts. So I just said, I'll, you know, put him on and see, you know, maybe what to do. And I was watching the game and I thought, you know, basically what the hell's going on here? You know, he's just, he looked fantastic, not just striking out the 13 guys, but he, he looked like the old Jose Barrios, you know, a, a really super competent guy. I'm actually doing a facts and fluke spotlight report on Barrios for baseballhq.com. And in my research, what I found is what Jose Barrios really is, is a competent middle of the rotation starter. And he had that one good year in 2021 when he looked way better than just that. But he just kind of bouncing back to what he is, which is he's not ace caliber. I don't think he is ever going to be ace caliber, but he's going to be the kind of guy that you can trot out there. He's going to earn you 14 $15 in five by five, and you got to be happy with that. Yeah, that's a really good way to frame it. And and I'll admit, I, I'm guilty of sometimes when a player like Barrios comes on the scene and he's a good pitcher right away, and you think, okay, he's still in his 20s. He theoretically, and I know that players' careers don't have to be linear. It's not like okay, you come in and you get a little better, you get a little better. There's ebbs and flows and peaks and valleys. But I always wondered, could he be somebody who steps into a, you know, a top three, top four Cy Young season? And I've stopped believing that. It's time for me to accept that he's just what he is. The funny thing, though, I guess the thing that kind of throws a wrench into all this is that if we were talking, if you had said to me, if you had like sent the tweet and said, oh, it's nice to see Jose Barrios finally strike out some guys, I would have thought, oh, what did he strike out? Seven? Strike out eight? You know, I, I just didn't think a 13 strikeout game was in his range of outcomes. And there's, I would argue, this signature significance to whenever you get to that type of number with strikeouts, the idea that a singular event can actually have more meaning than we're taught in baseball to look at the long run, the big sample, not the small sample. But if you do something so outstanding, it can have more significance than maybe a one-off would normally have. And I, I would argue that 13 strikeout game could have signature significance for sure. I know I got some interest, some trade interest in the league right after it happened because people thought, well, he's been underperforming. Now all of a sudden he looks pretty good. Uh, maybe this is an opportunity to, to buy high a little bit. And I actually thought about it, but then I, I agree with you. You know, I can't take this, this one event in isolation and allow recency bias to color my thinking about what he is generally, but it does remind me that if you just keep your mediocre, maybe slightly better than mediocre, your mid-rotation guys, those kind of lunch pail guys, if you just keep them active the whole season, you know what you're going to get at the end of the season. It's when you start messing around with streaming and taking them out, it's like timing the market in the stock market. It's a really bad way to make money. And if I had 
uh, kept Barrios for that 13 strikeout start, all of a sudden his overall season line looks pretty acceptable. But without it, it looks pretty unacceptable. And it's a lesson, I think, that we learn we learn hard. I would also argue that, and, and I get the process of why you, you benched him, but once somebody becomes a player you have to bench when he has a two-start week, it's like, okay, is he even worth rostering anymore? And that can be a tough, it can be really tough to know what to do when name brand players go bad. I mean, you know, I have Javi Baez on a couple of teams. I have Juan Moncada on a couple of teams. I actually threw him into a trade I made with Joe Sheehan in that labor league I talked about where I, I basically put almost no value on Moncada. You know, Joe was willing to finish a trade. Ironically, I got Walker Bueller in that in that trade. I'm, I'm down on Bueller, but I had such an overwhelming depth of, of hitting and I just needed to add. I'm just asking Bueller at this point to be like a, a fourth pitcher on my staff. I don't need him to be great. I just want him to be playable, which I still think he will be. But um, when when players, it, it's just so hard that we think, you, you think it's incomprehensible if Barrios or Baez or Moncada, if these guys aren't hurt, and I realize there's been some injuries with Moncada, but if they're not hurt, you would think they have a floor. And then they perform at, a, at an area at a level where it's like they have no floor, where you wanted to bench Barrios. I wanted to throw in Moncada into a trade for just about nothing. And on a couple of the teams I have Baez, I, I can't lie. I mean, I, it wouldn't take much to give him, to get him off my rosters right now. And I realize selling low is generally a mistake, but I'm worried there can be some fun, fundamental problems with him. And and maybe I just have to accept that there's no floor with Javi Baez. It also with Baez, there's something, when you watch a player who will swing at anything and, and he goes into a funk and he's hitting under 200 and he's striking out a lot and, and he's just getting all this junk served to him and he's still hacking at it. It's just hard to think. How is it? He's played his whole career that way. I, I just don't have a lot of faith he's going to turn it around. And it makes me. I didn't even really like Javi Baez before the season. I just think the price got into a. I got. I got to a point where I liked the price, and I talked myself into the player. And man, it it feels really. Uh, I feel like I have egg in my face for that one now. I should point out that in the two start week, the first start of the week was at the Angels, and he got roughed up. Two and a third, he gave up six earned runs, and for the two starts combined, his ERA was seven seventy, something like that, and his WHIP is around one thirty three. So, on balance, I think I have to look at the move because he was struggling coming into that two start week, and I I, I think it was the right move, even though sure. it. Because the league doesn't allow us to pick and choose who we start against, I probably would have benched him against the Angels if I could and started him against Minnesota in Toronto, but I didn't have that option. It was either take them both or take neither. And uh, the position that he was in at the time, I thought I'll I'll take neither. But uh, you know something else that's interesting about Barrios, and I mentioned it here on the show a couple of weeks ago uh, in my extra innings comment, is Barrios has been one of the least lucky starting pitchers in baseball this year as far as how many bequeathed runners the bullpen has allowed to score. I normalized his ERA, which was at the time, I think, 560 or something like that. And I said, what if the Toronto bullpen had just saved those runs at the same percentage that they saved everybody else's runs in on, on Toronto? And that turns out that's about the league average of 35% or so. And his his ERA would fall from 560 to about 460 or something like that, which is right in line more or less with the kind of fluctuations that a 420 type ERA pitcher is going to have. And I think the message or the lesson might be, if you're thinking about whether to dump a starting pitcher, take a look at how many bequeathed runners 
his bullpen has allowed to score and whether that's out of character for that bullpen as far as the percentage goes. Yeah, and, and taking a, a broader view of that, we're always trying to figure out who's lucky, who's unlucky. And there's a lot of ways you can be unlucky. One way, as you pointed out, is your bullpen can be letting you down. You can be really unlucky on on your hit rate, on, on your home run rate. Although I do think pitchers have more say in their home run rate than, than maybe we thought you know, 10, 15 years ago. I agree with you. I, yeah, I think I think there was some, I think we got when Babbitt came on. Gene McCaffrey had a great quote where you know Babbitt became a thing, and XFIP became a thing, and Gene was like, you know, we, we act like these things are the only things that matter now, and it, it keeps us from having deeper discussions and really thinking these things through. And we're finding out now that pitchers, you know, at first we realized, okay, wait a minute, there's a lot of randomness here, a lot of things that pitchers don't control. But now we're also realizing, yeah, but if a pitcher is inducing a lot of soft contact, he probably deserves some credit for that. But uh, back to just to put a, a, a bookmark on Barrios. I mean, I, you're doing what we all should try to do is when somebody is an outlier performance, how much do we think this pitcher or player is rel- is responsible for that? And how much of that do we think is variance, is luck, is something that could just even itself out over the course of the season, or at least go back to what the player's baseline is? It, it's not that you're really unlucky. And so that means he's going to get really lucky later. It just means that can he just have normal luck for the rest of the season? And if he does, then you have a player who's going to be rosterable and startable for the rest of the year. It's interesting that you mentioned the variability of performance because something else that I did when I'm looking at Brios for this uh, Facts and Fluke spotlight was I looked at his PQS values. It's a baseball HQ stat that kind of just looks start by start. It's similar to the kind of idea behind game score that Bill James used to have, but it's simpler. Mm-hmm. And I also looked at his ERA at the same time in, in rolling increments and in the 2021 season, when he had a really good ERA of 350 or 340, something like that, it just so happens that he hit the, the, the 32 games that he got that in just happened to coincide with that season when it started and ended. But on either side of it, his ERA was actually more like four. He just, it just so happened that that season coincided with, uh, with a variation to the good and if you carry it forward a little bit, it turns out his, his ERA ballooned back up over his, his median. And, and in the long run, as you said, it all works out. And I think 30 or 32 starts or whatever is a long enough run for us to be fairly comfortable with the talent level. But at the same time, there's still variance within that. It's not a set value. It's a value that has a high range and a low range. And you have to be aware of that and you have to be willing to accept it or at least to kind of figure out in advance how you're going to deal with it when you start getting one of the bad patches. Yeah. And and you said such an important word in fantasy, which is range. You know, we're always talking about what's a reasonable range of outcomes and what is a player's high range? What is a player's low range? You see it in the forecaster all the time where it says upside, you know, this guy could hit 40 home runs. We're not saying that he's going to, we're just saying that it's in his range of outcomes. Downside, this player could hit 210 or lose his job or something like that. Um, It's why we don't, and you know, Ron Chandler said this a long time ago that the idea of exact projections are a crock. You know, we're trying to deal with ranges and what a player's profile is, what what is possible and what is likely, and and, and it brings in a, a really wide error bar that we have to be we have to kind of make peace with that. 
I think that's right. And I think a lot of people are starting to kind of get their heads around it. I've, I've believed in it for a long time, but at the, at the same time, you have to rely on something and relying on ranges at the draft, especially is hard because you look at a projection or maybe you average four or five sets of projections or whatever your uh, method is. And you look at, it says projected 27 home runs. And you know, in your mind that that means his projection is 21 home runs to 34 home runs. Somewhere in there, 27 is more or less in the middle. But at the moment when you're trying to decide, you've got five seconds left to decide on how much you're going to bid or whether you're going to take him in that draft slot, 27 looks like an anchoring point that you can use to kind of figure it out in the moment, even though you know it's not really an accurate thing to be using at all. For sure. And, and you know, sometimes what I'll try to do is I'll try and – I don't know, this is just a false sense of security, but I'll try to balance some of my early picks with a couple of upside picks and a couple of players who I think are more floor driven. But then it's like, what, what even is floor driven? You know, I mean, I, I might've thought maybe Sal Perez was a floor driven pick. He's sitting under 200. You know, I, there are plenty of good players. I, I thought Bueller was a pretty safe pick before the season, although maybe some people would argue that I was misguided in that, but um it, it's hard. This is stuff. So much stuff is unknowable. And at the end of the day, you know, we try to put a good process into our decisions and, and that's all you can really do. If you can live with your process and you know, that that's, that's something that, that should be satisfying in and of itself. And the baseball season is very long and it, you know, we get a lot of chances to, to make every week we're making lineup decisions every week. We're making bidding decisions on the waiver wire. We occasionally have trades to talk about depending on how your league is structured and just take, heart and the idea that if you do it well over the balance of the season, you're a good player. I mean, you know, again, I'm not, all my teams aren't doing great, but you know, for the most part, I'll be satisfied at the end of the year if I can just make good decisions. I think that's well said. And to be sure, when you look at the various projection systems and, and a guy like Salvador Perez, they all predict that he's going to kind of come back towards that 240-ish sort of batting average that we've come to expect. Now at the end of the season, I think the error that some people make is they think that the rest of the season is going to be above 240 right. enough to drag his entire season to that 240 mark. And I don't think that's how we should look at it. I think we should say, if we believe he's a 240, 245 hitter, then that's what we should project for the rest of the season. And that means he's going to finish the year at 215 or 220. But it's a sunk cost in a way. You can't recover the all the at-bats or plate appearances you already have. I've got Sal Perez on my team, and I, I'm just I'm just grinding along with him, and I'm not expecting him at any point to 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 hit 290 or 300 or whatever it would take to drag him from 200 up towards 245. I am expecting him, or kind of counting on him, to hit 245 and you know recover at least some of the losses that I've suffered on that particular roster. That, that's such a key point. Um, I have Juan Soto, who's been a frustrating player for me. He has picked it up a little bit recently and still got more walks and strikeouts, which I always think is any, it's almost impossible to not be a great hitter if you have more walks and strikeouts, especially if you do it with power. I mean, I guess if you do it in your Stephen Kwan, it doesn't matter. But but Soto, the idea that you know, Soto right now, he's hiked his average up to 226. He was under the Mendoza line for a while. But it's... The, the way to bet is you know, around Juan Soto's baseline for his career. Not like, oh, okay, he's going to hit 420 the rest of the year. Although Juan Soto's so good, you, you don't want to say anything is, is impossible. But you make the key point that when we say you know, they come around, they, they, 
the regression kicks into the positive. It's more like, okay, he plays like the player we expect in his career. Not that he goes on some obscene tear. You hope that happens. It could happen. But the way to bet is the career baseline that's been established. Before we leave this segment, Scott, I'm curious about the big power outage that we saw at the start of the year. It seems to be recovering somewhat. I heard on a podcast just the other day that uh, home runs are up a little bit, runs are up by a you know a few tenths of a point. And given the volume of 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 games or innings or whatever that at bats or plate appearances, it's pretty hard to move those numbers, and yet they're moving. They are. If it's recovering. Well, what do you think about the possible recovery of the power situation and how are you going to manage it for the balance of the season? You know, it's a tricky question. I don't know how you change your fantasy playability. Um, That's a really tough thing to to answer. And I know you've talked about this a little bit on recent shows. I mean, baseball is just not transparent with how they handle like, you know, the, the ball. Is it jumpy? Is it is it dead? Is it mushy? You know, we have all these independent people who are doing work on it, and, and baseball never gives you a straight answer with it. And you know, they will deny that. You know, no, oh, the baseball wasn't different in 1987. The baseball wasn't different in, in different years where there's been power spikes or power outages. I suspect they may have given us a different batch of balls in May. I don't know that for a fact. It's certainly been more offense. We know the weather is going to help, and it's it's only going to get warmer. And I'm. Patrick, I was just sick of watching these two one one zero games. I'm, I'm just happy to see the crooked numbers come back. I don't need it to be. I don't. I don't want it to be 1999. And I don't want it to be where everybody hits 40 home runs getting off the airport. But um, I thought the April, the play of April, was very frustrating, and so I'm glad that offense has made a comeback. But I don't know because we're never going to get straight answers from baseball, and because we're always chasing a butterfly with this, where, where, where you think the butterfly is one place and you grab at it, it it's like a knuckleball. Just, it, it flirts and darts somewhere else. I don't know that my playability, the way I actually approach my decisions is going to change, but I definitely do think that, well, for, for one thing, the offense has rebounded. That, that, that's a fact. I mean, there's no doubt about that, but I think it's a real thing, whether it's the, the weather or the baseball or, Maybe there's some attrition effect with the pitching or maybe the hitting has come around. I, I don't know exactly what it is, but I do believe that what we saw maybe the last 30 days is what I expect to see more of going through into the summer. Likely uh, some combination of all of the above. And I think that makes it an interesting thing because at first when I started thinking about the rel- the loss of, of home runs, particularly in the early going, I thought to myself, it doesn't matter because it's all relative. You know, if the entire home run market has collapsed by 20% and my home run expectations or projections or performance on my team have declined by roughly 20%, I'm in the same boat as all the other guys in my league. And it doesn't matter that the category will tighten up. It'll compress if the overall number is lower. But then I started thinking, yeah, but you know, I've got guys in my league that have Aaron Judge on their team that, that have these outlier guys because they have such colossal power that the ball doesn't matter. The park doesn't matter. The cold weather doesn't matter. They are going to hit a lot of home runs. It's the marginal guys who suffer. And this is the same thing that happened back in the day when the first happy fun ball, remember it was guys. I remember I had Justin smoke on a roster. I think he hit 33 or 34 home runs that year after having like a season high of 22 in his career before that. And it suddenly dawned on me that who who's gaining from this 
from this extra footage that they're getting from the happy fun ball isn't Giancarlo Stanton or Aaron Judge. They're hitting it 450 anyway. You know, the only park it's not going to be out of is the polo grounds. But the Justin Smokes of the world are benefiting because they have a whole bunch of balls that die on the warning track that are now going to scrape over the fence and give them, you know, 12 or 14 more home runs. And I think that's what was going on this year and maybe even more impactfully because the guys who have the Aaron Judges on their team ran out to a big lead in home runs so that even if it does even out in the future, whether they've done something with the ball or maybe it's the weather, all these things that could come into play, we're not going to catch the guy who had Aaron Judge because he's just put up an uncatchable lead. I Here's where I point out that I have no Aaron Judge in any of my rosters. Actually, not that I thought he was a bad player or anything, but I guess people just liked him more than I did. I did think he was maybe a little goofy to not take that Yankees offer that they made him, and uh, he bet on himself. And, and right now, he'd probably be the MVP of the American League. And, you know, I, I, Aaron, Aaron Judge won, you know, Pienowski zero. 22 home runs as we speak. Jordan Alvarez has uh, second spot with 17. Mookie Betts, how about Mookie Betts with 16? Uh, a big rebound year for him. I would have taken him in every draft I could, but I never got him because all all the guys. I do. That did, well, that did get right. I do have a lot of Mookie bets. He's on my labor team. He's on a couple other teams of mine, and I mean, he's just got that perfect profile. I mean, two ninety seven average, fifty fifty two freaking runs scored, uh, sixteen thirty nine and six, and, and just the buoyancy. I, I love to. This is the most obvious point in the world, but you want your early players to be on really deep offenses where the lineup cycles through, where you get on base and people knock you in, when you come up to plate and other people are on base. And, you know, I don't think any lineup has more buoyancy than the LA Dodgers lineup, even with a couple of guys, it's hard to know what to make of them. I mean, I, I still day to day, I feel like I don't know who Cody Bellinger is anymore, but um, Mookie Betts is about, there's a guy who's about as safe as can be. And also he has second base eligibility in some leagues as well. So he right. gives you a, an extra position to play with. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. It's Patrick Davitt here with Scott Pianowski from Yahoo Sports. And Scott, you were one of the 12 fantasy experts who participated in the Tout Wars Memorial Day Mock Draft. It's quite a title. Uh, how did the draft go? It went okay. Um, there's certainly some things I would have done differently. Um, props to our mutual friend Todd Zola who organized this. It was a 12-teamer. And one thing that I was reminded during this draft is just how different a 12 and a 15 team league is where I feel like in 12 team, I'm sorry, in 15 team, if you don't address your catching, you don't address your steals, or you don't address your closers or your starting pitching at some point you might feel pressured. Oh my God, you know, uh, a run's going the wrong way, or I, I really need to get on this, or I'm just going to be, it's, I'm going to be too far gone to catch up. I feel like in a 12-team league, you can just be really patient. And I, I picked 11th in this league. I don't generally like picking on the end because you have those long gaps where you don't make any selections. But I feel like every area where I waited, I was okay with And there weren't perfect picks. And, and I know we're going to talk about some guys that maybe I could have picked differently. I, I certainly would have done a lot, a lot of things differently if this draft was today. I mean, it's almost two weeks old now. But I felt like everywhere where I waited – at least I didn't hate the alternatives when I got around to addressing those positions. So that just underscores the difference between 12 and 15 team. This was a particular draft. A lot of people commented on this. Uh, the Tout Wars um, populace was invited to comment whether you were in the draft or not. And there was no pitching taken in the first round, which surprised a lot of people. And I, I don't think that necessarily goes to the ethos of the way people were drafting in the spring. I was surprised by it myself. I decided to kind of push back on, uh, to wait on pitching, to do sit back on it. 
I was happy with what I got, but um, maybe if you got 12 different people in Tout Wars to draft tomorrow, maybe the first round would have three or four pitchers or you know, the, the first 20 picks would be like four or five pitchers. I, I think Corbin Burns was the first pitcher taken in the second round by Steve Gardner. And then it went a long time until Garrett Cole was taken by Peter Kreutzer near the end of the second round. That felt a little bit unusual. But uh, the main thing that, that struck me is just that in a 12-team league, I think it's a, lot, it's a lot more relaxing the draft because you don't get put into those awkward situations that you might feel in a 15-teamer. And we should point out, you don't collect the stats that have already been amassed by the guys you're drafting. It's just from Memorial Day to the end. Is that correct? Right. It's a start from scratch. It actually, we're, we're, I wish, I, I said to Todd, I would play it out, but we're actually not playing the league out. I wish we were, although I don't know if my team, there's a lot of things in my team I like, a lot of things I don't like. I, I took um, Manny Machado with my first pick, which I'm fine with. Third base is a very thin position. He's a power speed guy. Getting on, you know, kind of positive uh, luck on some of his batted ball metrics, but I think he's a pretty safe guy. My second pick was Tim Anderson, who got hurt, I don't know, 48 hours after I drafted him. And I look at some of the other guys I, I could have gotten. And um, I also, also want to say, and I, I, I even could have considered this player with the, um, I guess it would have been the 14th overall pick. I took Tim Anderson. I did not pick Julio Rodriguez, who went in the fifth round, middle of the fifth round to Joe Sheehan. I thought that was the steal of the draft. I think Julio Rodriguez, if we did this exercise tomorrow, I think he's a first-round pick, maybe. No worse than a second-round pick. I think there's a good chance he's a first-round player already for next year. I don't know how we let Rodriguez go to the fifth round. I know the draft applet didn't have Rodriguez you know, percolating to the top. You had to do a little bit of legwork, you know, and maybe I could have maintained a better cheat sheet for this draft. I mean, I guess part of that might have been on me, but um, – I, Rodriguez would have been defendable in the second round. Somehow we let Sheen get him in the fifth round. I, I don't think that makes any sense. And yeah, it, it he has had a terrific year. He's the bright shining light on my tout AL roster. And I got him for $7 in the auction, I think. And I imagine it's going to be five times that next year in, uh, in the auction, assuming he stays healthy and keeps doing what he's doing and homers and bags and all of that kind of stuff. He's having a terrific year. I noticed that you uh, grabbed Marcus Simeon in the 10th round. He's had a bit of a resurgence from a putrid start. What made you like Simeon there? I thought Marcus Simeon might even have gone later given his start. For sure. Um, He was the guy I was targeting. He was somebody, admittedly, he was somebody who I I did draft proactively in the spring. I may have talked about him on this podcast. And and I know like like Colton uh, Colton and the Wolfman are, big believers in, you know, somebody signs a big contract, leaves town, stay away from those guys. It would have kept you away from the awful season that Simeon's had so far. It would have kept you away from Javi Baez. In the case of Simeon, I know a lot of people looked at last year and said, okay, there's no way he's repeating that season, to which I would have said, fine. But what if he plays to his 2019 season? You know, or some of the other years he posted in Oakland. I, and he always had a really good work ethic with the A's. And I just thought this is a player I like his makeup, and I know that's a soft factor, and some of this stuff is hard to know, and maybe we shouldn't even you know, bake it into our projections. But I thought he's got power, he's got speed, he's got obviously got a job, uh, he's still young enough, uh, and a lot of people are just saying I, you can't say regression and leave the room. It has to be regression to what point. I thought he could give up a lot of his stats from last year and still be a value or at least you know, a par at his ADP. Now he hasn't played at all to that level. But when I drafted him about 10 days ago in the 10th round, I thought, well, Texas isn't giving up on him. He's still betting first or second. He's making all this money. They're never going to bench him. And he's starting to run really aggressively. I'm, I'm seeing a player that maybe, maybe he just becomes a player like 
like a 10 to 15 home run guy, but he steals 30 bases. He hits for a solid average and scores a bunch of runs. And what if the power comes back? Then I make a huge profit. Now, when I took him, I think a lot of people were surprised he went as early as I took him. And I think some of the other testament have commented that, that that looked wrong to them or just looked earlier than they they would have taken him. And, and that's a hard, it's really hard to know what the market was for Simeon, but I believed in the player and I, I can't lie. When we had that three home or two steal game, the doubleheader the other day, seven hits, just one of the best fantasy days I can remember. It's, um, I feel a little bit bad that if we had had this podcast a week or two ago, I would have told people to go out and trade for Marcus Simeon. Obviously that opportunity is out the window. Now you'd have to pay a much different price. And I'm sure his managers probably just want to hold on to him. Now they're, they're getting the player they thought they were getting in, in March, but uh, I don't know. I, I may have jumped the gun several rounds on Simeon, but he was somebody I was targeting and, and I was happy. I would have told you the day I drafted him that I really do think this is a pick that has a good, a lot of upside to it. And it's nice to be validated so far through two weeks. I like Simeon too. His 16% strikeout rate is fairly low for him. I think he might've been giving up his bat control a little bit to hit more home runs in 2021 and in the short season. He seems to be recovering back to his more selective style, but the power hasn't come with him, and we don't know if that's the ball or whatever it might be. Uh, we talked about starting pitchers, Scott. Your top two starters in the mock draft uh, at Tau Ors were Lucas Giolito and Dylan Cease. Was that a deliberate interest in White Sox pitchers or just how it worked out? Yeah, my, my top three, as it turns out, Giolito in the third round, Cease um, in round six, and then I got Shane Bieber, who I thought was a great value in round eight who I know there are some things uh, the people worried about with Beaver's velocity, but his strikeout numbers look fine to me. And they all pitch in a division that I think you can attack. It's, it's a bad division, right? I mean, there may be four losing uh, both sub 500 teams in this right. division. Detroit hasn't worked out at all. They, their lineup is a mess and, and the Royals have all sorts of dead spots. Uh, the White Sox haven't been a grid. Cease and Giolito don't pitch against their own team, but the White Sox have been a disappointment. Even, even Minnesota winning the division is, is no juggernaut. So that was a case of I get pitchers on the front nine of their careers with good strikeout rates in a division that I want to attack. And it used to be, I used to be a big, I know this is incredibly simplistic, but I was somebody for years. I'd just say, okay, I want my national league staff. You know, I, I want to pitch where the, the pitchers have to hit and they bunt and they give up, give up outs and all that stuff. And, and why run uphill when you don't have to, that is obviously out the window now with, with the DH being universal. And, I actually think the AL Central is the soft landing spot. It wasn't like I went in this draft and said, I have to have AL Central pitchers. But when they all landed in, I thought, very affordable rounds, I was happy to stock up on that division. I ended up, you know, Joe Ryan, he's hurt right now, but or maybe he's COVID, but uh, he was another pitcher I took in that division. So I was happy. I think that's a really good place to attack for our fantasy pitchers. I like Joe Ryan too. After you picked Giolito in the late third round, there was a, quite a little starting pitcher run in the fourth round. Eight out of the 12 picks in the round were starting pitchers. Did you do that kind of on purpose, trying to start a starting pitcher run by taking Giolito? Or again, was it just something that the room did that you weren't trying to manipulate? I'm not unhappy that it happened, but um, and I, I guess with all the bat, you know, reluctance to draft pitching early, you knew at some point, you know, as Derek Van Riper would say, the yellow brick road was coming. So I'm not surprised that happened. Um, but I, I can't say I did it intentionally. Now, what I did get wrong is I took Cedric Mullins in the fourth round. I still think he's okay with – I think the category juice will play with him. But, man, that's where I, Rodriguez or, or Randy Rosarena would have made a lot of sense. Um, maybe even George Springer, outfielders who all went in the fifth round. 
Um, if, I was going to take a Rosarena if he went if he got back to me in the fifth round. I missed him by one pick, and, and as soon as Rodriguez picked, I was picked by Joe. I, I just you know smacked myself in the face like, what, why didn't I take him? I don't I don't know why what I missed on that, but um, I think Mullins was probably a mistake in the fourth round. I, one of of a couple of things I would definitely do differently. What are you expecting from Mullins? I think he's uh, under 300 on base percentage. Uh, I have him in a league that's uh, on base percentage. Six homers, uh, 677 OPS, which is substandard. Lots of bags, though. Uh, What are you expecting from Cedric Mullins the rest of the way, especially as far as power goes? I would think he hits for a plus average for fantasy purposes. Not, Not what he hit last year, but over the league median. Maybe hits eight. Eight to twelve home runs the rest of the way. Runs aggressively, has a good lineup spot, uh, albeit on a bad offense. Uh, scores a decent amount of runs, a handful of of RBIs. He should have he should have gone probably in the fifth or sixth round of this draft, and I think he'll be, he'll be that type of player. And I, I took him, you know, at a spot. I took him a little bit early, maybe thinking wistfully back to the player he was last year and giving him a little bit too much credit for that. And when, when the regression year that he's having right now, it seems very realistic to us. So you look back and you could maybe have flopped Mullins and uh, Julio Rodriguez. Could you, you would have been much happier with the outcome, I'm sure. Well, I, I mean, I'm sure if I call up Joe now and say, hey, I'll trade to Cedric Mullins. I took him around earlier for Julio Rodriguez. He'll, he'll be like, don't call me again. But um, And again, Rosarena is somebody I would have, I would have been happy with too. Um, Tampa Bay's funny. I don't know why. I don't have, I don't think anybody on their lineup uh, in, in their, um, in their offense on my fantasy teams. And so I, every time I look at their lineup, it's like brand new to me. And I granted they're one of those teams that it feels like they want to set a different lineup for every game. Yeah, I, I couldn't tell you right now what their basic one through nine is. Cause I think it changes every day, but uh, he's, I know he came up late in uh, it, it's always kind of tricky to know what to do with like the Whit Merrifield types, the guys who come up in their late twenties who end up being productive, who don't necessarily have a pedigree, but he's somebody who I've, I've actually really come around on. And I feel bad that he's on none of my rosters. You grabbed Danny Jimenez of Oakland in the 13th round after having drafted Kenley Jansen. You could have taken Clay Holmes. You could have taken Gregory Soto. I think the draft was just before Clay Holmes really took over this closing role in New York. But Gregory Soto had like double-digit saves and a 170-ish ERA. And he went very late in the draft, I thought. Why not Gregory Soto? Why not uh, Clay Holmes? Yeah, I I certainly... You know, I, it's funny because I've never been a Chapman guy. And, and again, he's somebody, I, it's something I did get right where I, I told people I was down on Chapman before the year. He just requires a lot of maintenance, never pitches more than 60 innings. And I have Holmes in a couple of teams. So I, I'm really excited that I think Holmes is going to be the guy the rest of the year. That that was a lot foggier two weeks ago. So in the case of Holmes, maybe you just needed the story to play out a little bit more. You sort of... I may have anchored to how I felt about Soto before the year where I didn't trust his control. I thought Michael Fulmer was a threat to Soto's um, job, which it hasn't proven true at all. And it just so happened after I drafted him and as he, he's really lost his way in Oakland, I thought he had a pretty good leash around when I made the pick. But in retrospect, I think what I might've done is just not taking any closers at all in that spot because of some of the guys you could get later. I mean, I got Ryan Helsley, who I still think is St. Louis's best option for saves. I got him in the 21st round. As you mentioned, Soto was inexpensive in this league. David Robinson was inexpensive in this league. There are certain drafts where saves are, are just aggressively chased, and I just don't think this was one of those leagues. Again, I think it's a big difference between 12 and 15 team. You know, If this is a TG FBI format, 
where the saves feel like you're at the elbow and, and, and maybe go after them more proactively in this draft, you could go after, you could go after them kind of at your own pace. And even though I thought I was doing well, getting him in as in the 13th, I, I think I probably the right play would have been just to take another hitter or another starting pitcher at that point. That's what I really regret doing. You know, him and just happened to kind of fall on his face after I drafted him. That that happens, but I agree with you. He, does he look better than Holmes or Soto right now? Absolutely not. You took Christopher Morell in the 19th and said you weren't sure where you were going to take him. Why was the uncertainty and why was Morell on your list anyway? Oh, I'm, I'm so excited about him. And um, I would have put him in my boons and banes other than the fact that I'm going to talk about him now. So I don't need to duplicate him, but multiple position eligibility. Really good approach at the plate. He makes contact. He doesn't strike out. Um, he has excellent speed and is a, has a willingness to run. He draws walks. He is, he's not powerless at the plate. He's not a power hitter, but he, they can't knock the ball out of his the bat out of his hands. He's going to hit a handful of home runs and probably hit for a plus average. And he's got the endorsement of the coaching staff. I, he's somebody I, I got him when he started to percolate. I got him as many leagues as I could. Unfortunately, I couldn't get him in, in Tout Wars. Jeff Zimmerman was a week early to Morell, as he so often is on players. Jeff's a, an excellent player. He's not having the greatest Tout Wars season, but he's, he's got a great resume in Tout Wars. Certainly one that I envy. But I got Morell wherever I could, and I think he bets lead off the rest of the year. And we always talk about that speed is it's it's going away. Teams don't run that much. but So you don't need to really find – that much speed in your draft, or maybe you get lucky with one pickup during the season and that can really make your year for speed. You don't need that many saves anymore. I'm sorry. Any as many steals anymore to be competitive. I think Christopher Morrell at the end of the year is going to be somebody we're going to look at and say like, he's one of like the top 10 or 12 offensive pickups. I think he's going to be a full year story because again, I love the approach. I love that he makes contact so well. I love that he can play almost anywhere on the field. And it, you see the quotes coming out of Chicago. And I know, I know we have to take coach speak with a grain of salt, but I think they really believe in is his coachability, his, um, his approach, his, how he fits the leadoff spot. I think he's very quickly kind of marked his territory as somebody who I see. It would take a long slump, I think, to dislodge him from the leadoff spot because he draws walks. Guys who walk pretty much, that doesn't go into slumps. They may go into batting slumps. But I think his OBP is going to play all season. So I'm, I'm really bullish about him, both, both in the present and in the long term. One thing when I looked at him earlier is that he wasn't a big walk guy in the minor leagues. Like he has years with the uh, 9%, 10%. He's at 11% this year. I don't know if that counts as a guy who walks a lot, but it's not like he's walking 17% of the time like some guys are. Is 11% uh, acceptable to you as a guy who's walking enough to maintain that grip on the leadoff spot? Oh, I think so. Um, but you, you make a fair point. And we're not talking about prime Joey Votto here or, you know, current day Juan Soto. But anybody who's got a double-digit walk rate, um, especially this early in his career, I you know, that's enough to move the needle for me. Your 23rd and last round pick was Jake Cronenworth of San Diego, who was pushed down the batting order in late May, bounced back to the second slot just a couple of days after you drafted him in the draft. Uh, you talked about batting order uh, as a criterion earlier and how you're trying not to look at batting order so much, but why did you like Jake Cronenworth with that last draft pick? Cause in a 12 team, you probably had lots of choices. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, I, you could argue I jumped the gun with Marcus Simeon and I could have taken him a lot longer. At least I was very patient with Cronenworth and I took him with my last pick. And this was just a case. And this is part of the reason why I took Simeon too. It's just the idea that 
Cronenworth was a really good hitter for the past two seasons. And I just couldn't believe that he all of a sudden forgot how to play baseball overnight. It just, he just had to be, I thought, better than what he's shown to this point. And, and the Padres hadn't given up on him. And again, I, I know it's, it's, it's easy to fall into confirmation bias when something falls into play. Again, um, Simeon's been hitting. I, I didn't give up on him. It, it's, it's easy to say, oh, I must have been right to be patient about that. Um, Cromworth's hit the ball really well over the last few days. He's hit a handful of home runs. He's back in the second spot in the lineup. And another guy who grabs three positions of eligibility, which I love. I, I may love that to a fault, Patrick. I love having a roster that's positionless to the point that I can just play my best players and not have to worry about the positional fit so much. But I, that was just a case of I believed in the resume that Cronworth put up the two previous seasons. And I thought he'd just been his bad start was a little bit more about fluke and, and, and bad luck than anything else. And that's how you have to look at it. I, I think that's a really excellent analysis by you, uh, Scott. Two super interesting so far. Uh, let's take a break, uh, do some National League and American League news with Nick and Ray, and then we'll come back and finish this discussion. Sounds great. Scott Pianowski writes for Yahoo Sports, and he'll be back a little later in the show. Coming up, we have our Market Watch Player News reports. Nick has the National League news. Ray has the American League next on Baseball HQ Radio. Right now, though, it's time in the show when I get to let you know about a couple of facts and flukes performance validation reports on the site now at BaseballHQ.com. In the first, analyst Brian Rudd looks at five American leaguers, including slow starts by Jonathan Scope and the aforementioned Kike Hernandez. And that second Facts and Flukes report, Greg Pyron looks at five national leaguers, including a somewhat disappointing year-to-date performance by Nick Castellanos. It's Facts and Flukes, and it's another reason why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our Market Watch Player News Reports. Ray Murphy is on deck with the American League Report. And leading off, it's our National League News and our old friend, Baseball HQ Pitcher Matchups Analyst Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Patrick. Let's start in Cincinnati. The Reds catcher Tyler Stevenson was having a pretty good year, especially on the batting average side, but he's going to miss uh, four to six weeks. He broke his thumb, took a foul off his meat hand in the fourth, left the game. Uh, Before we talk about what happens behind the dish in Cincinnati, when I was a kid, uh, I caught a little bit in like minor baseball and stuff, and our coaches always said, hold your bare hand behind your back so that a foul ball can't hit it. And uh, do they just not do that anymore? You know, I don't know. That's that's interesting. I remember that that instruction, and uh, I I really don't know. Have to have to look at that and see. I remember hearing I don't, one of the catchers who does the color commentary on a baseball broadcast once, and he pointed it out, and it wasn't like it was ubiquitous, but whoever was catching had his hand out and took a took a shot off the off the throwing hand. And that, that catcher, the announcer, and this is quite a while ago, I don't remember, but said, you got to keep your hand either underneath behind your knee or behind your back because you don't want to take a foul ball off your meat hand. And you'd think, given the uh, value of catchers in the big leagues, you'd think they'd all be told, get that hand out of there. You would think so. That would make, uh, that would make sense. But they don't, apparently, at least uh, Tyler Stevenson didn't get the news, so he's going to miss four to six weeks, as we said. What happens behind the dish in Cincinnati while he's out? Uh, Aramis Garcia replaced him behind the plate and should see the biggest gain in playing time. Uh, Garcia's not likely to be a fantasy asset, a 198 uh, expected batting average, 69 expected power index, 
so, uh, you know, not, not much there at all for fantasy managers. Uh, Stevenson missed time with a concussion already this season. Uh, been one of the few bright spots on the Reds, but uh, is going to be gone for maybe four to six weeks. And Nick, it doesn't look like there's any immediate help on the horizon in the Reds minor league organization in the BaseballHQ.com scouting organization reports. There's no catchers, so it looks like it's Garcia, and that's not much. <laughs> no, no, it's not much at all. And but it doesn't, you know, it's the way the Reds are, are are playing with the current record, they're not going anywhere. So they're probably not going to go out and find a catcher. At least they're not going to give up anything of value to, to uh, obtain one. Yeah, I think you said a mouthful there. It doesn't seem like there's any point, really. Uh, in Arizona, they made a couple of moves. Well, three moves. First, they broke uh, Tyler Stevenson's hand. But second, uh, they signed right-hander uh, Dallas Keuchel to a one-year minor league deal. Nick Munch, uh, one of our new reporters covering the story for Playing Time today, I wouldn't have had any interest in Keuchel with the White Sox. In Arizona, looks like they're an even worse team. So is there anything here? Not really. Uh, Diamondbacks look to add some depth to the rotation. Uh, Keiko looks to prolong his career, but uh, it's been a steady decline for the 34-year-old left-hander since uh, his 2015 Cy Young campaign. Eight starts for the White Sox this year. Nothing went well. Strikeouts are down. Walks are up. Homers are plentiful. Uh, one thing to watch, if Keiko gets called up from AAA Reno, he'll reunite with his pitching coach from Houston, uh, Brent Strom, who might be able to rekindle some of the magic from Keiko's time with the Astros. But for now, we've added Keiko to Arizona's revolving door at the back end of the rotation. I think the most ominous thing in that uh, uh, little synopsis that you gave, Nick, is homers are plentiful. And, uh, of course, a big-time ground ball pitcher giving up a lot of home runs is an indication that something's really not going very well. And there doesn't seem to be much of a light on the horizon, even though there's a lot plenty of sunshine in Arizona. I don't see much reason for optimism here, and I certainly, as a fantasy manager, would not be rushing out to pick up Dallas Keuchel. More importantly for fantasy managers, the Diamondbacks also put shortstop Nick Ahmed to the 60-day IL with continued concerns with his throwing shoulder. It's an issue that's been troubling him for quite a while. As I said, he was already on the IL. They just moved him to the 60-day IL. I think it's a bookkeeping measure to open up a spot on the 40-man roster. Uh, So is there any fantasy effect here now that Nick Ahmed's for sure on the 60? There's a good chance that Arizona will be without Ahmed for the rest of the season. Uh, he's been fighting a right shoulder injury li- really since before the 2020 season. Went on the DL in April, just as the season got started. Uh, came back to battle through 52 at-bats, flashing a mild uptick in power along the way, but went back on the DL on May 16th. Rehab was shut down June 3rd with continued shoulder discomfort. So he's set to meet uh, with a specialist, but the move to the 60-day IL, IL is really an ominous sign. He was hitting 231, had three home runs in those 52 at-bats. And boy, kind of mouth-watering if you stretch out 50 at-bats to 600 at-bats. All of a sudden, you're looking at a 35 home run season for Nick Ahmed had he been able to stay healthy. But of course, he didn't. So who gets the reps at shortstop in the meantime? Uh, Geraldo Perdomo was always projected to have a regular role in the Diamondbacks infield. And now more of those opportunities will come at shortstop. He's shown uh, solid patience at the plate, 13% walk rate, a little bit of speed, uh, never shown much pop, but with an everyday job, he can pick up some counting stats. Ahmed's injury also opens the door for Arizona native Cole Tucker to get a chance in a new setting. Uh, Diamondbacks added Tucker after Pittsburgh DFA'd him in late May. A former first-round pick, Tucker has not had much success at the big league level, despite multiple opportunities to live up to his lofty pedigree. 
and 2022 has not been any different. Struggled through 63 at-bats, making contact 60% of the time. Didn't draw a single walk. Uh, he has some speed, though, so keep an eye on him if he gets going at the plate. Longtime AAA player Jake Hager also gets an opportunity, but not likely to be a fantasy contributor. I actually had Tucker on a team years ago when he was still with Pittsburgh and he did have a really good pedigree. And I think I paid a, you know, a fairly lofty sum for him in fab and he came up and uh, of course you're hate, you're hoping for the bags cause he had that track record in the minor leagues, but gosh, he just couldn't hit and he couldn't get on base either. As the report that you just gave suggests he couldn't draw a walk, couldn't really get a hit. You can't steal first base. So a lot of his value just went by the wayside for the simple reason that he, he simply couldn't get on base. Yeah. Isn't that the truth? I mean, we spend a lot of time in, in fantasy looking for guys who can steal bases and, and when they have a great, great minor league pedigree too often, they get to the majors uh, getting to first base is the real problem. The call-up report for Geraldo Perdomo when he came up in April uh, had him as an 8C prospect, which is a kind of an everyday regular, and uh, that's what his potential role, they said, is a, a starting shortstop, more field than hit, but somebody, if you're in a fantasy league that has multi-year ramifications, dynasty or uh, keeper league, maybe somebody to look at, but I don't think he's a top flight kind of shortstop if that's what anybody's looking for. We're we're always all looking for that. Uh, the Giants demoted catcher Joey Bart. Speaking of prize prospects, uh, Jake Crumpler, one of our other new reporters, covering the story for Playing Time Today. Uh, what was going wrong with Joey Bart, and what are the Giants going to do about it? Well, uh, Joey Bart just hasn't been able to get it going, and and the Giants are are still hoping to contend, and so. Joey Bart's line, 156, 296, 300 slash line, was sent back to AAA Sacramento to, to uh, work on his approach to the plate. And with the Giants uh, set on reaching the playoffs again, they needed offensive production behind the plate. And uh, he simply was not going to provide that as he failed to make contact, striking out in 45.4% of his at-bats. Uh, that's just almost unfathomable. Uh, I'd strike out more than that, but, you know, you would hope someone would actually get to a 50% uh, contact rate of some kind. Uh, the move places veteran backup Kurt Casale into an everyday role while the newly acquired Austin Wins will play the backup role. About 30% playing time. Uh, Casale, 70% playing time. Uh, 31-year-old former Baltimore Oriole Wins was highly productive in the Phillies AAA affiliate this season, walking 20.9% of the time and more than he was striking out. And an impressive 179 WRC plus across 134 plate appearances. Not much success at the major league level, though. Never had much success at the major league level, uh, but the San Francisco organization is known to get the most out of their veterans, and uh, that will give Wins the opportunity to build off his minor league success uh, in a very limited role in San Francisco. Some interesting news on Thursday of this week. Former Cy Young caliber right-hander Steven Strasburg, World Series MVP, made his first start of the season on Thursday in Miami. How did it go? Not too well. Uh, Struggled through four and two-thirds innings, allowed seven runs, eight hits, two walks, uh, struck out five, hit a batter, uh, throwing 63 of 83 pitches for strikes while averaging 91.9 miles per hour with his fastball. Um, Former three-time All-Star and you said uh, World Series MVP had not pitched in a major league game since June 1st last year, spending much of the time recovering from surgery on July 28th to correct thoracic outlet syndrome, a compression of nerves, arteries, or veins near the neck or armpit. He had made three minor league rehab starts, 
Uh, National manager Dave Martinez said Strasburg didn't throw 93 to 94 miles an hour, but his fastball had oof at the end of it. Uh, next start will be Tuesday at home versus Atlanta. I'd like to get more information on that oof metric that Dave Martinez is using for pitcher assessment. Sounds like <laughs> sounds like it could be a real useful tool in the uh, fantasy baseball toolbox. It, it does indeed, doesn't it? Except it, uh, it didn't <laughs> seem to measure much in terms of Strasburg's uh, Strasburg's recent work. So uh, we'll have to work on uh, oof as a and and in the newspaper report that uh, this came from, it was spelt with three O's and three F's. So oof. <laughs> <laughs> There you go. I was trying to think of a of a way we could make it into an acronym, but boy, three F's in a row is not uh, alliterative, but not very easy to manage. Uh, sounds like it could be good, though. We'll have to look into that. Let's move along. In Pittsburgh, the Pirates have promoted an outfielder, Travis Swaggerty, from the minor leagues and optioned infielder Rodolfo Castro back to AAA. Rick Green covering the story for playing time today. Where does Travis Swaggerty fit? And I thought that outfield was pretty set. Now he becomes the seventh Pittsburgh player to make his major league debut. Um, and, and the call-up now gives Pittsburgh four main outfielders, Brian Reynolds, Jack, uh, Jack Sawinski, Cal Mitchell, and Swaggerty. And Ben Gamble will join the mix, but he's out indefinitely with a bad hamstring at the moment. Uh, Reynolds will see everyday action. Remaining three will fight for at-bats. Uh, Castro, one of those seven who made debuts in 2022, will head back to Indianapolis. And with his departure... Uh, Dio Castillo will see action at shortstop. Uh, manager Derek Shelton said Castillo should see plenty of action there. So it looks like a call-up of O'Neill Cruz isn't something that's immediately likely to happen. Uh, more on Swaggerty and daily call-ups. Got an 8C rating. Uh, so, you know, somebody to keep an eye on, but uh, I think no, someone not to get too excited about. Yeah, going back to this outfield situation, I suspect that there might be some trade talks going on for Brian Reynolds because he's the one chip that they have that they might be able to cash in and get some useful pieces for the future. And if they're counting Ben Gamble, they have five guys. Uh, Brian Reynolds, despite being easily the best of the bunch, might be more valuable to the team as a trade chip rather than in the lineup. Yeah, he might indeed. And so it's some, so certainly something to keep an eye on as we near the trade deadline. I think you're you're very right about that one. In Cincinnati, uh, they had a game up here in Toronto, and it was the first time I've got a look at a starting pitcher named Graham Ashcroft, a right-hander, and uh, he looked pretty good. Uh, he was only playing because of the Reds had some pitchers who couldn't cross the border because of their vaccination status, and uh, that gave him his shot. He looked pretty good, I thought. Yeah, he parted that spot start into two additional turns through the rotation uh, after displacing uh, Vladimir Gutierrez and could remain a fixture in the starting five based on his current run of success, has maintained a 1.53 ERA and 0.96 whip in uh, 18 innings pitched. It'd be fairly easy to write those off those results as fluky based on the unconventional way in which they've come about. He's struck out only 13% of the batters he's faced, uh, and has, uh, but he's limited damage by a 62% ground ball rate and by limiting hard contract, a 1.8% barrel rate 97th percentile exit velocity, uh, also fared well on the PQS scale. So no disastrous outings thus far and has served as a kind of stabilizing force on the, on the red pitching staff that has been in desperate need of somebody who can, who can stop things. Uh, through Saturday's games, the team's starting rotation had posted a 5.96 ERA, worst in the league. So removing a successful starter shouldn't be high on the list of uh, roster decisions. Uh, in the short term, his role is kind of safe, 
after Connor Overton suffered a significant back injury that landed him on the 60-day IL. Uh, on the horizon, Nick Lodolo is working his way back to the mound, could be activated by the end of June. His return will crowd the rotation, though a six-man rotation would make sense if the team hopes to limit the workloads of both Lodolo and Hunter Green in a very non-competitive season. They'd probably also be interested in limiting the workload of Graham Ashcroft, again, because they're not going anywhere. Six-man rotation does make a lot of sense for the Reds in that respect. Uh, before we get super excited about the track record that Ashcroft has put up so far, his four games in the big leagues were here in Toronto, and Toronto was really scuffling at the time offensively. Then San Francisco, which was a, a pretty good outing, six and a third. He got the win, had a one strikeout and two walks, so he's never going to be a strikeout guy, but a million ground balls. And then the last two, Washington and Arizona, and nobody's going to mistake Washington or Arizona for the uh, 75 Reds. So uh, let's temper our expectations for Ashcroft until he's been around the league a little bit and we'll see if he can manage to succeed despite basically striking out almost nobody but getting all those ground balls. Yeah, other than Toronto, he hasn't faced an, uh, an offense that we would say is challenging. So uh, I, I think it, uh, it certainly remains to be seen what happens uh, after the better offenses in the league begin to get a look at him. Finally, Nick, uh, starting pitcher Edward Cabrera has been hot, but he definitely has some sticking points. Uh, Alain de Leonardis covers the National League East for playing time tomorrow. What are Cabrera's chances of sticking in the Miami rotation, given the warts and all approach that we're looking at? Well, you know, uh, Edward Cabrera has uh, been all the rage in fab circles since his 2020 debut. Six innings pitch, one hit, no runs, four walks, nine strikeouts. Uh, and and that, that happened in Colorado. Uh, so there's a lot to like about his start. Uh, 97.1 uh, velocity to the 18.1% swinging strike rate to the 72% first pitch strike rate. Uh, the warts are uh, an 11% hit rate at this point, uh, which certainly is not good. And kind of wild, a 16.16% uh, walk rate, so a little wilder than you would want. We're starting to show similar skills in AAA this year before his call-up. A 31.7% strike rate, 11.9% walk rate. Uh, what's clear is that he's working with tremendous stuff, including an absurd 93.9 mile per hour changeup, uh, complementing the slider and a curve. And also clear that his control is still a work in progress, uh, let alone command. He had trouble finding the plate during his cup of coffee in Miami in 2021 a 16% uh, walk rate and 26 innings pitched. Odds are that location will continue to be a work in progress. So, yeah, what are the chances of his sticking in the rotation? If he can, can continue to overpower hitters, he could mix dominant outings with the occasional wild clunker. Um, beyond his own efforts, Carrera is essentially competing against uh, Braxton Garrett, uh, Cody Petit, and the recently demoted Elisa Hernandez. Uh, Jesus Lazardo has yet to begin a throwing program in his rehab from a strained forearm, so he's still at least six weeks away from returning. Poteet is also currently on the IL with a right elbow, muscle injury, and without a timetable for return. And finally, Max Mayer, the team's number one pitching prospect, has resumed throwing after a brief shutdown due to uh, ulnar nerve irritation in his right elbow. So still likely a few weeks away from returning to the AAA rotation. It's probably at least a couple of months away from being promoted to the majors. So all that adds up to a, a really kind of a long runway for Cabrera to take off. 
Uh, he has the kind of ceiling that should command your attention, even if he isn't quite command, uh, can't command the baseball all that well just yet. And Nick, since Alan wrote that analysis, Cabrera had another start against Washington. He got the win, six innings, only four strikeouts, two walks, and he gave up a home run. Uh, this is a really a mixed bag, and I think this is an interesting kind of conundrum for fantasy managers. If you're in a single-year league, a redraft league, the damage that he could do to your decimals is not going to be worth the benefit of him getting you uh, some strikeouts. On the other hand, if you're in some kind of long-term format, a dynasty or a keeper league format, then I think Edward Cabrera looks much more interesting. Yeah, I think that's a perfect analysis, uh, Patrick. It's uh, one of those things that that he's the kind of pitcher who on the wrong day could have an absolutely disastrous outing uh, against a team where you don't expect it. Uh, and uh, so, the, and as you said, really, really hurt the decimals very, very badly. All right, Nick, thanks very much for helping us out with the National League news this week. And we'll talk to you again in seven days' time. All right, thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com and our man on the National League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now let's turn over to the American League and co-general manager at Baseball HQ and a columnist at the site. It's Ray Murphy. Ray, welcome back. Glad to be here as always, PD. Happy Friday. Happy Friday to you as well. One of the big stories that's been going on in the American League this year was the sudden arrival of outfielder Taylor Ward of the Angels. He started the year, I think, on the IL, but when he finally got back, he was hitting the hell out of everything, and now all of a sudden he's had a string of injuries, and he's ended up on the IL, and they recalled Joe Adele. Uh, Jock Thompson covered all this for playing time today. How would you advise fantasy managers to consider the 316th reappearance of Joe Adele on a major league roster? Yeah, Adele is back to try to breathe some offense into this uh, more abundant Angels lineup that has been decimated by injuries and snapped their 14-game losing streak last night. But you know, there's I'm not sure there's a lot of reason for optimism. He was hitting 222 in AAA, 28 strikeouts to six walks, and that's in hitter-friendly Salt Lake City, where I mean, at least when you put the bat on the ball, good things are supposed to happen. So uh, you're not a total. Uh, not, not a heck of a lot of reason for excitement here. I, I actually watched him the last couple of nights since the Angels were playing the Red Sox. And I, I had this epiphany last night. It actually happened right when Adele, believe it or not, failed to score from second base on a double off the wall, which is which is a, which is about as dubious as it sounds. Um, <laughs> he, re- he really is the modern day Lonnie Smith. Like he can hit a little bit, but. Everything involving running or fielding is just a complete adventure. (laughs) (laughs) How did he not manage to score? Well, he thought it was going to be caught, even though it was over Franchi Cordero's head and hit the base of the wall. So it was one of those like little league plays where he went back to second base to tag up and the guy from first had the better angle. So he was about four feet behind Adele at second base. And, you know, then they had Then he stopped there and Adele like, you know, it's not, it's not even like he didn't score on the double. Like he, he, he I think he had a slide in the third. <laughs> <laughs> a close play at third from second on a double. Uh, maybe, maybe. Maybe when he saw the ball going towards Franchi Cordero, he thought, well, that guy's a great outfielder. <laughs> I better, better play it safe. That Franchi can go get him. 
<laughs> said nobody said nobody ever right, right yeah. exactly. well compared to me you know <laughs> all right but yeah so, it was it was a circus out there it sounds like yeah i never realized that adele had struggled so much with the glove but i've been reading about it lately and uh, of course that's just another black mark against him in addition to all those strikeouts it's starting to look like you know, maybe this guy's just never going to get there. I, I certainly wouldn't bet on it at this point. But what do we do with uh, War? Shoot, sorry. <clears throat> in the meantime, what do we make of Ward's departure from the roster and the impact on the outfield in Los Angeles? Yeah, it's you know Ward's been terrific when he's been in the lineup, right? But you know Adele was up at the start of the season because Ward missed the wasn't ready for opening day due to a groin injury. Uh, there was a hamstring injury that cost him a couple of days in May. There was a neck stinger after he ran into an outfield fence. Uh, there's a, the shoulder that, you know, what seemed like it might put him on the DL, but then there was the hamstring that actually did it. So, and, you know, clearly all of those things were bothering him. He was hitting under 200 in his last 10 games before he hit the IL. So as exciting as he was for, you know, four or five weeks in between those myriad injuries, I think, he still needs to show us that he can demonstrate the skill of health, right? I think that's correct. And also, I think he only had one home run in that 10-game span in 30-some plate appearances, so it's quite a a regression from the uh, pace at which he was hitting home runs earlier with all these injuries, especially shoulders and hamstrings. You couldn't ask for worse injuries for a power hitter. So um, who's going to play while he's out? Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of a mess. It's going to be Adele for a little while, and there's been some uh, Juan Lagares uh, appearing in their lineup, which you know is never really good news. You know, he's uh, you know he hits a little bit against lefties, but I saw him playing against some of the uh, Red Sox righties, which is a uh, w- w- which is bad, which is a bad sign for the Angels lineup. And of course, the Angels are you know they have other issues too. You know, Trout's been day to day this week. Rendon's on the DL, so the fill in the fill in infielders like you know, Matt Duffy and those kind of guys who sometimes even could have been, you know, an emergency, an emergency option in left field with trout out, et cetera, um, aren't available because they're filling in the infield. So it's, uh, you know, we were talking about the Salt Lake lineup and Adele's work there, you know, the rest, the rest of this lineup, when trout's out, uh, you know, when it's not Otani, it's, it's a lot of Salt Lake city caliber reinforcements here. So, uh, you know, the, the best thing the Angels can do is hope that some of these guys come back sooner than later. In the meantime, Tyler Wade gets a lot of uh, at-bats that he might not otherwise have got just because he's pretty versatile. I think he can play every pitcher, every, Jesus. just because he can play every position except uh, pitcher probably. And what do we make of Tyler Wade uh, over his career? He's been a fairly light bat, but he can steal bases. He was the one who hit that double last night. Maybe what happened was that uh, Adele was so stunned that Tyler Wade actually hit a ball to the wall that he didn't know what to do with it, right? That's <laughs> another possibility, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, well, I mean, Wade's, in all seriousness, Wade's calling card is, of course, his legs, not uh, not his power. You know, he, he actually had a like really uh, interesting binge of stolen bases for the Yankees late last season. Uh, it seemed like a bunch of them came in a pinch-running uh capacity or you know off the bench situations he's still 13 bases and just 78 at bats in the second half last year for the yankees which is which is tough to pull off when you think about it yeah, uh, the, especially the bat- when you're not playing exactly when you know maybe the reason why he wasn't playing is you know we're seeing now as he gets exposed in more playing time with the 
Angels this year. Uh, he's only hitting 216 and 116 at bats. And the real problem there is he's only six for 11 stealing. So six stolen bases to five caught stealing is a good way to not keep your green light. So, uh, you know, that's a concern too. Even if he stays in the lineup, if he's not running there, you know, there, then there really is no path to value because the power certainly isn't going to keep him employed. And in the last week, he's actually one for three in stolen bases, so he's getting worse instead of better. Uh, anybody who's got Tyler Wade, I think this might be a time to try to angle around your league and see if anybody's interested in picking up a little speed because, as you say, one for three, six for 11, whatever that ratio is, somebody's eventually going to say, you know what, this guy's costing us runs out there. So, hey, hey, Tyler, on the rare occasion when you actually get to first base, just stay there and wait for somebody to drive you around because maybe he runs the base as well and just isn't stealing. It's a technique thing, but he has been a fairly successful stolen base guy over the last few years, has he not? I think the last time when I picked him up this year, I thought he had, uh, you know, seasons of 10, 11 type stolen bases in relatively limited time, under a hundred at bats, you know, 10% of uh, a stolen base in 10% of your at bats is doing pretty well ratio wise. It really is. And yeah, my recollection as well, as I pull up the numbers here is that he didn't have a giant, uh, caught stealing problem before. And and no, that's true. Um, coming into this year for his career, he was, um, 30 stolen bases to eight caught stealing, which is, you know, excellent in the neighborhood in, in the neighborhood of the, of the, of the, uh, the ratio you want to see. So, you know, that's in the, that's better than 75%. So maybe it's a, maybe it's a slump, maybe in the midst of the 14 game losing streak, he's going in spots where he normally wouldn't to try to, mm-hmm. you know, get the, uh, get the lineup going a little more. I don't know, but it's to your point, it's not working. In Oakland, they made a passel of moves, and I'm going to mention them just on sheer volume alone. They activated catcher Stephen Vogt from the 10-day IL and recalled first baseman Matt Davidson from AAA. They sent down a guy called Parker Markell, or Markel, who I literally have never heard of before today. Uh, he, they sent him down, and they optioned Sheldon Noisy, the uh, infielder, to AAA. So obviously no major fantasy names in this package, but what is playing time today analyst Rod Truesdell's take on all of these roster machinations? Yeah, it's kind of tough to tease this out, but Rod always has a good handle on what the A's are doing. Uh, He sees Vogt playing in more of a utility than just catcher role, that he'll be a part-time catcher, maybe some time at first base and, and DH against righties. But the problem there is, you know, even if there's a bit of an opportunity there for vote, he hasn't really been an effective hitter since probably 2019 or even a little bit earlier when he last flashed a little bit of power as a, you know, part-time, you know, sort of bat first catcher. And there's a sort of a big chasm between bat first catcher and bat that you don't mind playing at first base. And I think vote gets lost in the middle of that chasm somewhere. Um, certainly he's had a checkered injury career, so you can't rule out the possibility of a couple of weeks of good health leading to some production, but uh, it's hard to see him being a big fantasy contributor in even on this team in, in the coming weeks. Davidson, you know, his skill set's a little easier to tease out. He's a sort of a one-trick power pony. Um, he had 15 homers and 139 plate appearances in AAA, 53 home runs, and just over a thousand at bats in his MLB career. If that's you know, if that's two full seasons, then you know, 53 home runs is pretty good. But that comes with a career 222 batting average, practically a 40% strikeout rate, over a thousand major league 
plate appearances. That's uh, that's a lot of stiff breezes. Um, and finally, noisy. Who finally noisy? Who went down? Uh, was hitting two twenty eight in one hundred and seventy at bats and two home runs. There were there were five stolen bases there. So that's uh, you know sort of a little bit of the of the Tyler Wade profile we were talking about earlier. But now he suffers that fate where you know the stolen bases in AAA don't count. So no more help there. Five for six anyway, so it's a little better story than Tyler Wade's. I have to ask, though, uh, Rod Truesdell didn't mention Kevin Smith in his roster analysis, but Smith might be even less productive than Noisy this year. He's hitting 184. I think his XBA is barely over 200. He's got a couple of homers, three stolen bases. I think they were expecting more in 136 at-bats. Is Kevin Smith on the firing line? Yeah, he could be, or at least putting it another way in any other award, he probably would be right. Yeah. Um, you know, there was a, there was a pretty solid prospect pedigree coming here. He came over from the blue Jays and I, I believe in the Chapman deal. Right. So, um, you know, 2021 triple a line, 21 home runs, 18 stolen bases, a nine thirty one OPS all in, you know, 400 plate appearances, which was, you know, neighborhood of two thirds of a season. Those are pretty exciting triple a numbers. Obviously they have not translated. Um, but you know, given that, you know, he's part of the Chapman return and given the other lack of options in the organization, maybe they've just decided to let him sort of figure it out at the big league level for now. Um, but yeah, what, you know, there, there's uh, it, it's been pretty bleak so far um, and lacking alternatives. I mean, they, I guess the other prospect, you know, I was looking at their, uh, depth chart the other day, getting ready to talk about this. I mean, there's some, maybe they could add Nick Allen, but I think that's, you know, if you put him at third base, I think he's, shall we say, uh, we need a 70s reference here, uh, more Mark Belanger than Robin Young. Is that fair? Yeah, that sounds about right. And uh, he's a really good glove, which is not nothing, but a good glove I don't think is what Oakland really needs at this point. And I have to say that uh, Kevin Smith, I have him on a, on a roster, and it was somewhat frustrating to watch how the athletics were handling uh, Smith in, a, in one game, out the other, play three, sit two, you know, that kind of stuff. And if you have any level of belief in the uh, 9831 OPS in AAA and the homers and the stolen bases and all that kind of stuff, I think you need to give this guy an extended run and see, you know, exactly what he's going to give you. Maybe also don't play him at multiple infield positions, which is something else that they were doing, mostly third base. I think he might even have been thrown out in the outfield at one time. I don't know now about Kevin Smith's possibilities, but I don't really like them. Yeah, there's a lot of variables there, and I would agree with you. Between the defensive yanking around and the in and out of the lineup yanking around, uh, you, you know, you're not creating a stable environment that you know would would lead him to settle in and and uh, you know sort of find his way at the plate. I guess then maybe the only you know if the choices are to yank him around in the majors like that, maybe they should set him down at AAA for a month and get the bat going, and then maybe decide that when they bring him back that. They they're gonna just anchor him at third base or whatever it is, um, but yeah, it's uh, from the rooting for Smith perspective, like you are, I, I certainly relate to the frustration you're voicing there. 
Up in your neck of the woods, Ray, the Red Sox placed a utility man, mostly center fielder lately. Kike Hernandez goes to the 10-day IL with a right hip flexor strain. And usually when a guy like Hernandez leaves the lineup, there's like all kinds of musical chairs and falling dominoes, whatever your cliche wants to be. What's going to happen in Boston with Kike Hernandez on the shelf? Yeah, there's uh, there are indeed a bunch of dominoes. And like you said, it's mostly been center field for Hernandez this year. But the uh, Red Sox went a little bit of a different direction in replacing him. And they, they called up uh, Jonathan Aruz, who's an infielder, uh, to fill in for Hernandez in the short term. And that's led to a little more playing time for Christian Arroyo, who can masquerade as an outfielder from time to time. And then, as as earlier mentioned, uh, Franchi Cordero getting some outfield time, which allows both him and Bobby Dahlbeck into the lineup. Um, I gather that what they're doing here is they called up Arauz just for a couple of days while they were squeezing in some rest for the infielders. Like they're, they're cycling through days off for uh, Xander Bogart's Trevor Story, Rafi Devers, and then they're going to swap out Arauz for Jaron Duran um, early next week, if not sooner and that'll be the more traditional Duran will probably pick up center field at bats that Kike was getting uh but in the meantime they're going with the extra infielder kind of spotting Aruz for a couple of days and that leads to silliness like Frankie Cordero in right field and Jackie Bradley in center or Alex Verdugo in center uh so they're playing team pretzel here as they finish up this road trip any chance we get another look at uh Jaron Duran? Yeah, I think he'll be back probably for the homestand next week for the the rest of Duran, the rest of uh, Hernandez's uh, DL stint. I would think that uh, probably Sunday after the road trip, they'll send Aruz back down and call up Duran and give him, you know, there might only be a week left on Hernandez's injury at that point, unless he ends up missing more than a minimum. But Duran will probably be in the lineup next week at home. In our Playing Time Today coverage of Boston, we reported that right-handed reliever Hansel Robles was supposed to make a AAA rehab appearance uh, yesterday, Thursday, but I couldn't find any record of it. And now you tell me he just went straight back to the Sox bullpen and got a little bit of work to get the cobwebs off. Uh, What's the latest on Hansel Robles and what's the latest on that (laughs) Boston bullpen? Yeah, the Hansel Robles returns to the dumpster fire that it was when he hit the IL. Um, now, <laughs> the, the, the overall temperature has not really gone down there. Uh, of course, some of the Robles inflicted damage had stopped while he was on the IL. You know, I'm reminded of the uh, I'm reminded of the Homer Simpson uh, the Simpsons episode where Homer Simpson gets promoted to management and he's the safety officer and everyone's praising the fact that the uh, you know the plant safety has greatly improved since he became the safety officer and they're like, well, yes, but the, the, the <laughs> The, the incidents are all, you know, the, the, the decline in incidents of, uh, you know, safety breaches at the nuclear power plants are exactly correlated to the ones that Simpson himself was thought to have caused. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that that's a really good analogy. I remember that episode. It's really, fu- it's really funny. But seriously, what are the Red Sox going to be doing? It seems like lately they've been letting everyone this side of the monster seats beer vendor have a go in uh, pitching and relief. Indeed, they have, but I think you know we've talked about this a couple of times, and you know I, it's been very hard for me to figure out what Alex Alex Cora is doing here. And of course, some of that was the fact that you know he was 
being reactive and desperate and not having good options here. But I think I've sort of teased out what his plan is. Um, Robles coming back might shuffle it a little bit, but they've they've broken the model where Tanner Houck was Rich Hill's uh, tag team piggyback starter uh, pitching, you know, three or four innings at a time then. And they're transitioning Houck into a more traditional relief role. And I don't think it's going to be quite a one-inning role. But, for instance, there was a game uh, Tuesday or Wednesday night when he came in, pitched the eighth and ninth innings in a tie, and ended up getting a win when the Sox went, won it in 10. But I think you'll see more of that. So Houck becomes more of a, you know, when he's available, which is probably every other day, every third day, he's available for an inning or two and he'll be the fireman on those nights. On the other nights, when Houck's not available, uh, we saw Matt Strom get two saves this week. Those were a little more situational, but I think it's you know it, it's Strom, it's John Schreiber, who's been probably the only consistently effective guy in that pen. And now that he's back, Robles, um, to the extent that Cora's willing to go back to that well again, might be in the mix on the off nights but I, where Hauk is not available. But I think it's going to be, you know, your sort of bullpen flow chart for the Red Sox becomes, is Hauk available? If yes, insert here. If not, then play matchups with Strom and Schreiber and maybe Robles. Main, she's sorry. <clears throat> My switch got stuck. Maybe Robles, you say, on behalf of all those like me who have Robles hanging around on a reserve list, what are we supposed to do? I, I think I'd run away. I, I mean, the, the only reason to stay interested is because before he went on the IL, Cora kept running him out there. You know, he was the closest thing to the closer, even though all he seemed to be doing was giving up home runs in the ninth inning. Um, you know, so maybe Cora has disabused himself of the idea that he should keep trying Robles in that role. Uh, and the other guys, Schreiber, Strom, Hauk, have all been more effective than him. I, I guess I can't rule out the idea that whatever was wrong with Robles got fixed while he was on the IL. And if he comes back and has a couple of decent outings that, Cora might fall into that trap again, but you know, as a Red Sox fan, that's not what I want to see. I'm not enjoying the Ansel Robles experience at all. On the surface, it looks like he's actually doing kind of all right. Uh, 250 ERA, a one whip. Those are the kind of numbers that you can accept from a guy that you might want to be a closer, but I think underneath the hood, it's a little less confidence building. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, six walks and 13 strikeouts and 18 innings is not closer worthy, shall we say, um, is probably the best way to, <laughs> the most charitable way to put it. And, you know, scanning his game game log, he had started off pretty well. In a April, he had popped off, I think, eight or nine consecutive scoreless outings to start the season, which is the way he had sort of, you know, pecked himself into that quasi-closer role. But then uh, since the end of April, one, two, three, He's been scored on, and it was five of eight outings before he hit the IL, and you know he has that one clean inning since returning uh, last night. So, I mean, you know, that was one inning with uh, with two strikeouts and no hits allowed. So that was nice, but it was the you know it was the bottom of the eighth inning when they were trailing five to two or something like that. So it wasn't a uh, you know it wasn't a, it wasn't a high leverage situation which had been going poorly before. Uh, but Cora is predisposed to like him, so that's the only reason that I you know if I rostered him, I wouldn't be completely running away at this point. 
Well, that's not nothing. A big part of the saves picture is who does the manager like? And if that's the case, I'll probably hang on to him and maybe run him in and out depending. I don't know. It's it's really hard to say. Uh, moving on, but staying in bullpens in the American League East, Andrew Kittredge, who looked like he was kind of bubbling to the surface in that uh, everybody saves a game here in their milieu. Uh, he came back from injury a few days ago and uh, two days later back on the IL with a different kind of thing. And he's probably going to have surgery to remove a loose body in his elbow and a loose body in the elbow was what took Shane Boz out of the, out of the picture for the first uh, couple of months of this season. How long do we expect uh, Kittredge to be out? Do you think? And then what happens with the uh, musical chairs going on in that bullpen? Yeah, that bullpen, you know, barely slows down enough for 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 riders to get on and off, right? Uh, so this time, Kittred's got on for two days and gets off again. Uh, you know, th- the estimate on the surgery to remove the loose body is at least a month, and we're at that point in the calendar when at least a month conveniently takes us to the All Star break. So I, I would think the best case scenario is that he's out until the start of the second half, which is roughly five, five and a half weeks at this point. Um, and it could be more than that. Uh, so what happens in the meantime, you know, it's messy. One guy who's been rising recently is uh, Colin Posh, or is it Pache? I'm not even sure. Uh, probably he, he might be at the top of the pecking order now. He's a lefty, but he's been super effective uh, and working, you know, in the eighth and ninth inning quite a bit there. Uh, you know, he's got a 147 ERA in 18 innings, has picked up three saves already. But as we know, Kevin Cash is not going to, you know, just name a guy here. So in addition, in addition to Colin, I will call him, uh, you know, there's Matt Whistler, Jason Adam got a save last week, earlier this week. Ryan Thompson tends to get in the mix from the right side. You know, Brooks Raley could be a second lefty. If uh, they go to Pache in a higher leverage situation in the seventh or the eighth and on, uh, on the IL besides Kittredge, there's still uh JP Fireisen. And then if he comes back first, uh, you know, he could just get back in this mix too. So the Rays are well on their way to having, you know, 10 guys with more than five saves and nobody with 15, which is a movie we've seen before. Right. It is. And, this is something that we've talked about before. It's the way that the way that they run a bullpen is the way guys like you and me have been saying for 10 years is how they ought to be doing it. And the problem is when they do it, it just ruins the, the bullpen in, in, uh, Tampa for fantasy purposes. There's really nothing you can do unless you're in a holds league, then there there's bountiful choices. Right. And a holds league is great. And, you know, if you if there were even two or three guys, you could let, you could bet on, and you could have a you know a half a closer, and expect that from a a guy like Pache, you'll get you know good ratios, a strikeout, an inning, and a handful of saves. You could live with that, but when they you know when they divide the pie by eight instead of by three, you know the fraction the fractions get pretty small in a hurry. In Toronto, the catcher Danny Jansen has been having quite a good year. All of a sudden, he's on the IL. He got hit by a pitch. And the bigger news here might be who they called up to replace him. Top prospect Gabe Moreno is going to be coming to the big leagues. Yeah, this surprised me too because they were already carrying three catchers, right? Since Jansen had come off the D- off the IL previously, like you said, he was hitting pretty well. And Alejandro Kirk had been doing some – had settled into that DH a few times a week, catch a couple times a week role that – you know, we sort of forecast for him earlier in the season and that was going pretty well. And then they still had Zach Collins around as, 
you know, sort of the third catcher that you want to have if you're going to be using one of them as a DH. Right. So it didn't seem like they needed to add Moreno, but they did it anyway, which I guess means that they like the way they're using Kirk and they don't really want to expose Collins to more work. So they think there's an opportunity to weave Moreno into that mix. That's that's how I'm reading it at least, at least right? I think that's right. And of course they want to see what they have with Moreno. The knock on him so far has been the defensive skills, which is almost always the case with a young catcher coming up. And, uh, the worry, I think from anybody who's looking at Moreno, I think he's worth rostering. I don't, I don't want to get anybody wrong, but I don't think he's going to be as productive as we might expect because of the burden of learning how to be a catcher at the big league level. And it, that, I don't know if they use the walkie talkie thing that they use in AAA that they use in the, in the majors, which would be another wrinkle that he'd have to figure out. There's a lot of stuff going on when you're a major league catcher and it sometimes interferes with your ability to hit. Yeah, that's exactly right. There's all, there's going to be a lot of adjustment there. And as you say, you know, the, the problem is it's not just an adjustment for Moreno, but you know, if they're going to be ripple effects for the Jays pitching staff, then that becomes uh, something they may not have a lot of tolerance for. I just checked our, uh, playing time allocations, and I don't think we're fully updated yet, but we had Kirk and Jansen at 40% of the playing time each at catcher. Collins was at 15, and we had Moreno for a token 5% uh, playing time allocation, which obviously has to go up now that he's called up. That was probably, that 5% was probably reflecting a anticipated late season call up or something like that. Right. But just look, looking at this chart in terms of what's available to reallocate, it's it's Collins is 40% of the playing time, and you know, Collins pro- you know, is not out for the year, so 40% of the playing time over, you know, the next month might be, you know, 10 games or something like that, that, uh, you know, maybe we'll see Kirk catch a little more, Collins catch a little more, Moreno catch, you know, will he's up, he's not there to sit, so he's going to get some opportunities, but, you know, I think, you know, it's kind of facile analysis, but better dynasty ad than a single year ad, right? I'm not sure there's a ton of immediate value to be chased here. I guess it'll also depend on your league format, uh, single leagues. He might be a lot more interesting because of the real paucity of talent that you have in single leagues at the catcher position in two catcher leagues in particular. So he might be worth having for 10 games on, you know, if he strikes gold and, and hits three home runs in his first seven games or something like that, they might say, you know what, Zach, weather's beautiful this time of year in Buffalo, have at it and, uh, and go with the three catcher routine that they're going with now, but putting Moreno into it rather than having, uh, rather than having Zach Collins have a part in it. Once Danny Jansen gets back, of course, and we don't know how long that's going to be. I think it was a broken finger now that I recall and a pinky finger. So not as long as it could have been had, had the injury been worse, but for the time being, I think you're right about the three catcher thing with Moreno getting basically the, the tiniest share and, uh, everybody else kind of picking up a little bit of extra time, including Alexander, uh, Alejandro Kirk, who could be, uh, I don't know, does he benefit from extra playing time or does he wear down from extra playing time, which is one of the reasons that they're DHing him so much. Yeah, you wonder if there's a little more, they can't just DH him more because the problem is when they DH him, they, they're knocking one of the non-catchers out of the lineup, right? Uh, so so they can't just default to DH and Kirk Moore. He, he may have to catch a little more. And as you say, there are there are downsides to that. But, uh, you know, he's probably not going to wear down that quickly. Maybe it's a situation where you realize the benefits of him 
being in the lineup more over the next month and then they'll back off him more. Maybe you sell high in three or four weeks. If he has a good three or four weeks and you, you get it, you, you ride the wave as long as you can and then trade him right before Jansen comes back. I don't know. That's just a thought. It's an interesting thing to think about at least. And what I would be really curious about is if Alejandro Kirk can keep hitting at somewhere near the rate that he's hitting it, currently, then all of a sudden, I'm very curious to see how far he springs up draft boards next season, assuming that he's well-established by that time as a catcher and as a guy who can really hit. Yeah, that's exactly right. And then, you know, he's already secured the catcher eligibility for next year. He's caught 30 games. He's going to end up catching, you know, plenty this year to, to be catcher eligible, even if he's in more of a hybrid role next year. And of course, you know, the neuro is the questions about how the rest of the roster changes to maybe clear out the DH spot more for more for him. But like you said, he's he's demonstrating that his bad plays and when his bat plays and comes along with catcher eligibility for you know at least the next couple of years, that gets that gets pretty exciting pretty quick. Sixteen dollar player on baseball HQ's valuations for five by five, and largely driven by five home runs in 150 at bats and a 322 batting average, which is something you don't see even from non-catcher offensive players in baseball very much anymore. 322 could be competing for a batting title if he gets enough plate appearances. On top of that, a uh, 400 on base percentage too, which you really got to look hard to try to find this year. It's, uh, and more, and considerably more walks than strikeouts. His batting eye ratio is 130, which is, you know, not quite Bonzian, but you know, on that side of, you know, barely mortal. That's, uh, you know, you, you just don't see numbers like that anymore. You certainly don't. Uh, Alejandro Kirk's a really interesting guy. Last week or the week before, we talked about the Detroit Tigers outfield because they were sending one guy after another to the IL. And then they started getting them back. Robbie Grossman uh, started his rehab in Toledo uh, earlier this week, hit a home run. Austin Meadows returned to Detroit on June 7th. Riley Green is producing in Toledo. All of a sudden, they're going to be back right where we thought they were when we talked about it last except all these guys are back rather than leaving. Yeah, all these guys are coming back, and the I think the, the bottom line here is that there's really no impediment to them coming back and taking over their spots in the lineup, right? Because uh, none of the guys who were filling in have really acquitted themselves that well. Uh, you know, we've seen a lot of Derek Hill. Daz Cameron's been getting some work in center and not doing much lately. We talked about Cody Clemens's call up last week and he got called up and uh, immediately hung up an offer that, uh, you know, I think, re- you know, he went, um, he's over his career over <laughs> his career still, yeah, over 15. Um, so you got to figure he's probably not sticking around for too long. Willie Castro was moving around the outfield a little bit as well. While these guys were out, he hit a little bit better, but that's probably just enough to keep him on the, uh, you know, as the backup infielder behind Scope and Javi Baez and maybe play the fourth outfielder. He might be the, he might remain in a sort of 10th man role on this team, either him or Harold Castro. But that outfield of Riley Green and Meadows and Grossman is, I would imagine, going to be, you know, pretty quickly installed as the everyday outfield going forward because nobody who was filling in made a case to stick around. And Grossman wasn't making much of a case to stick around before he hit the IL. He had a really good year last year with 20-some stolen bases. So far this year, he's got two stolen bases, and he's hitting 199. So 
if there's going to be some movement around, I don't think we can automatically assume that Grossman's going to be a part of it, except they pay him a lot of money. And, you know, the general manager will oftentimes look at the salaries before he looks at anything else in deciding who's going to play, maybe if only to highlight them for a possible trade if he gets a little bit hot. They also lost Heimer Candelario to the IL, so that's going to create some third-base possibilities maybe for uh, Harold Castro and maybe for the Clemens kid because he was a, a shortstop third baseman, something like that, in the minor leagues. So he's got the position versatility that maybe Daz Cameron certainly doesn't have. Derek Hill certainly doesn't have all of these other guys that are outfield only who seem ticketed out as soon as the uh, the bus arrives from Toledo. Yeah, you know, that's exactly right. And, you know, I think the other thing to watch for here, uh, you know, we, I think we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, but, uh, you know, putting on my old speculator hat for a little bit is I think it's not crazy that when these guys come back that we see Spencer Torkelson get sent out either. Uh, he's been, you know, he's hitting the buck 90 with four home runs and it hasn't gotten much better in the last 30 days. He's hitting 220 with one home run. He's striking out more than 30% of the time. I'm not saying Cody Clemens is more of a future of this franchise than Spencer Torkelson or anything crazy like that. But when Riley Green comes back and uh, the outfield fills up and guys like Castro um, are free up to go back to the infield, maybe you see Torkelson go down to get a little bit of work, scope move over to first base, and that's how some of – the Clemens and Castro types get a little bit of a longer leash. Just a uh, just one thing that occurred to me while I was looking at this depth chart here. When Ryan Bloomfield took over the speculator column, didn't you have to give him the hat? I did, but I uh, <laughs> I, I, I still reach for I still reach for it from time to time when I want to uh, when I want to make a point. <laughs> yeah, I, I thought I remembered the little ceremony and the the chanting and the candles and stuff. Uh, if you took it away, I bet Ryan will be mad. Uh, Ray, thanks a lot for helping us out again this week, and we'll talk to you again in seven days' time. <laughs> thanks, PD. Always a pleasure. Ray Murphy is a co-general manager at Baseball HQ and a columnist at the site, and he covers the American League for us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Next up, it's part two of our feature expert interview with Scott Pianowski from Yahoo Sports. He'll be coming to the plate for his second at-bat next on Baseball HQ Radio. But right now, I want to mention this week's Speculator article, with columnist Ryan Bloomfield donning the Speculator hat that he got from Ray and looking at the idea of forgiving that one bad outing. As for me, I'll forgive Steven Strasburg when he gets 14 or 15 good outings to offset that stinking egg that he laid on Thursday night. Also, don't miss the next edition of Baseball HQ Radio, another Friday full edition featuring an expert interview with Ariel Cohen from Fangraphs and the Beat the Shift podcast and all the usual great stuff, our National and American League news, Baseball HQ commentaries, all coming up on another Friday full edition with Ariel Cohen next Friday on Baseball HQ Radio. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for part two of our feature expert interview with Scott Pianowski from Yahoo Sports. Scott, welcome back to part two. Great to be here, Patrick. A few days ago, you wrote in your Yahoo Sports column that the Cincinnati Reds, my favorite team, are really bad. You don't win a Pulitzer Prize for that analysis, I don't expect. But the point of your column was that there's some fantasy gold even in that red dirt. Uh, who are a couple of the Reds that you gave a thumbs up to? And how many opportunities do people miss just because guys are on bad teams? Yeah, you know, I, t- I try to cover all, all 30 teams. And, um, you know, the, the Reds, I, I'll say this. 
I, they're not a good team. They're not going to make the playoffs, but their offense has actually come around nicely. I, at the time I wrote the article, if you had looked at the previous 30 days, I think they were the number six offense in the majors and run scored over that period. And some guys who have popped in, Brandon Drury has been a, a revelation, a, a guy who we, a journeyman, a guy who we probably had no fantasy expectations on. Jonathan India gets hurt. A Drury gets put in the lineup. He's hit for a plus average. He's, he's hit for decent power. Uh, he's walks or, you know, some walks. He, he strikes out a little bit, but, but nothing prohibitive. And I think he's going to have a role even after India comes back, which it sounds like it's pretty soon. I don't really know that Kyle Farmer is a long-term play because he, right now he's got like a league average OPS plus, but he's got category juice. He's got five home runs. He's got four steals. He qualifies at a couple of different positions. That has value. Uh, although I'm going to mention Tyler Stevenson later and, and talk about maybe the opportunity to sell him. Any catcher who's hitting over 300 right now and playing just about every day, uh, we, we have to take seriously. Uh, so he's interesting to me. I also think Tommy Pham, one of the most unlucky hitters in baseball right now, um, all of his hard hit metrics say that his production should be a lot better than what it is. I know he's, he's kind of a wild card with he's got a mercurial personality, and we all know what happened with him and Jock Peterson. But the Reds haven't given up on Pham. He hits third just about every every game. And let's also not forget the ballpark, right? It's the number one scoring ballpark by uh, by Statcast ballpark factor. So, the, which is a big thing. Anytime that isn't Coors Field, we have to take notice. I mean, we know it's a good place to hit. So even though the Reds don't have a good team, they don't have a good pitching staff, it's been a really frustrating pitcher staff. I don't know what to tell Tyler Molly owners, although every once in a while he throws a good start. But I don't feel bad about the offense. I think there's like three or four guys I'd be perfectly happy to roster on most of my mixed league teams. Where do you stand on Joey Votto? Just the circus leaves town for everybody eventually, to, to quote my good friend Michael Salfino and and Votto is um, 38, going to be 39 September. I just if, if this was like a cliff season, this is kind of what it would look like. Uh, I think he's a guest hitter now. I, I'm, I'm nervous that he's not going to be. I mean, he's still got the 337 OBP, um, but I'm just worried that I can't bet on the average anymore. I can't. I know he hit 36 home runs last year, but I, I, I'm worried that this is the season where it falls. I'd rather be a year early to this than a year late to this. So I even if he were offered to me at a, at a very depressed cost, which I'm sure he would be in any trades right now, I'd still be reluctant to buy in. We talked earlier about Julio Rodriguez and in another Yahoo Sports column earlier this week, uh, you used Julio Rodriguez as a springboard to a more macro discussion about how we deal with young players in fantasy baseball, especially rookies. And you made an interesting comparison between fantasy baseball and fantasy football. How did that work? Yeah, you know, one thing I've tried to do, and I, and I I want to be upfront about this, I think this is actually a lot more relevant for fantasy football than fantasy baseball, and I, and I don't want to get too deep in the fantasy football weeds because I know we're a baseball podcast, and um, I don't I don't want to be, um, you know, do anything that's going to upset the, the, the listeners or anything. But I've come to the point, I've accepted in fantasy football that I need to draft younger, that I need to... Running backs on second contracts can be really bad bets in the NFL. Uh, wide receiver windows often kind of start to get closed in their late 20s. Certainly by the time a lot of those guys turn 30, their careers start to really hit a tailspin. And in fantasy baseball, I, I always had this idea of this, the Abanias All-Stars. I used to love the boring veterans who would be underappreciated because they weren't sexy, they weren't buzzy. And for a lot of years, I made a really good value on those guys. And I still think you can occasionally find them in fantasy baseball. I don't think they're as much of a good play in fantasy football. But I have not been a shiny new toy guy. I've not been a, 
elbow people out of the way for a rookie's guy. And last year in my keeper league, again, with, with my partner, Scott, um, the guy who I had the Dansby Swanson argument with, last year we were the guys who drafted Jared Kelnick and Julio Rodriguez very much out of um, MO for us, You're very much out of, um, out of our usual strategy. Uh, you know, it's just unusual for us that we, that's a league where people generally go. It's a keeper, a multi-year keeper league where people generally just pay through the nose for a process. We actually paid a lot for Kelnick. We got Rodriguez really cheap. And then, cause we had a chance to, to win the league. We traded both of them. We, we got a lot for them, especially for Kelnick. We got way more for Kelnick than he was worth. As it turns out, we didn't get anywhere near what Rodriguez was worth because he's turned into such a star now. And that's, you know, man, does, does that, it's it's hard to just see somebody you could have had for three or four years who's no longer yours. In fact, we've we've been plotting of how to try to trade back for him, but I'm sure that other manager doesn't want to give him up. But um, I think I just the, the takeaway to all this is I think I need to, to draft certainly need to draft younger in fantasy football, but I think I need to be more open to drafting younger in fantasy baseball too. I think I've been more sympathetic to the Abanias All Stars and to the old boring vets, and there's still a time and a place for them. But I think I need to embrace some of the upside of younger players that maybe I've been reluctant to do in previous years. I think that's a pretty good analysis. And not only for the reasons you cited, but Major League Baseball is going towards younger players too, partly because of cost reasons. They have all that cost control over young guys the first six years of their careers. And I think if you're sitting in a front office and you can say, look, I can get, you know, I don't know. Tyler Wade or somebody like that for $8 million or $6 million a year as a established veteran. Or I can get some guy who looks pretty promising in our organization and seems like he could do at least what, you know, Tyler Wade does, which isn't that much. Why not? And I think that for that reason, as well as the other ones that you cite, I think that uh, looking younger is probably going to be the way we're all going to have to go in fantasy baseball. Uh, preseason and in-season, if your leagues allow you to preemptively pick up uh, minor leaguers like Tout does, which I think is a really good wrinkle in the rules, that uh, being on top of young players is always important, but I think it's going to get more important. Sure. And, and you really hit the nail on the head of, for the reason why is because teams have gotten smarter about the financial shape of their rosters and how, and, and this isn't satisfying to say this, but they realize that the most valuable thing you can have is a talented player who doesn't make relatively a lot of money. That's so valuable. And then to go back to the football example, the best thing an NFL team can have is a rookie quarterback, a quarterback on his first contract who makes, you know, relatively speaking, a low salary. And it allows you to stock up at other positions. You know, that's what the chargers have right now with Justin Herbert. He's already a star quarterback. He hasn't gotten to his second contract yet. The chiefs had this for a few years with Patrick Mahomes, Russell, so Wilson was like this for the Seahawks. He wasn't even a first-round pick. He was a third-round pick. When you can find young talent in both these sports, then it enables you to overspend for the other positions. But, but again, these teams have gotten better at realizing that let's get as many cost-controlled players who are helpful to us, useful to us, valuable to us right now. That That's the, the business model we want to follow. And it, it means that the players of what you see is a lot of star players don't make as much money as they should early on. And I don't, I don't know eventually when baseball is going to fix this, we know they have the problem with the service time manipulation. And some people think that maybe free agency should come sooner and all that stuff. But uh, teams have finally figured out, Hey, young, inexpensive talent. That's where the game is at. 
One of the commenters on your column noted that the Mariners were really patient with Rodriguez while he found his sea legs this season in his first 81 plate appearances uh, pretty much all through April. He was batting 206. He hadn't hit a home run. 15 combined runs in RBIs, 30 strikeouts against seven walks. He wasn't looking that great, but they stuck with him. And since May 1st, he's been terrific. 871 OPS, seven homers, eight bags. Is there a lesson here for the brain trust of fantasy teams and the Kansas City Royals? I don't think it's commonly going to be as obvious as this case was, but there is a lot of video shared on Twitter and other places and, and, I, and I wish I had somebody to credit this for because I don't, can't remember where I saw it first. But it may have been Jason Collette. It may have been somebody else. Um, by the way, any anytime you want to you want to guess who came up with a good idea, Jason Collette's a, a good place to guess. Julio Rodriguez was getting unbelievably screwed by the umpires for the for the first few weeks. And I don't know if they just want to remind them, hey, you're a rookie, and I've been an umpire for 18 years. I mean, I, I think we're all kind of a lot, maybe not all of us, but a lot of us are looking forward to when the umpiring gets overhauled. Maybe we have a, a better system. Hopefully they, they have automated umpires someday. I don't want the whole world to be automated, but man, I, it's just frustrating to see guys called out on pitches that aren't in the strike zone. But Julio Rodriguez was getting as screwed as anybody in baseball for the first few weeks. And I wonder if that maybe gave the Mariners some patience. What's really interesting here is I, I think the Mariners actually have been fairly patient with Kelnick too although he's in the minors right now. And all Kelnick pretty much has done since he's played the last two seasons is strike out. He's shown a little bit of power, but other than that, he's been a total flop. And I talked about that league where we drafted Kelnick and Rodriguez last year, and we traded both of them. This year, Kelnick actually got dropped in that league. And as I said, we're not contending. So we just we decided to add Kelnick and hope, even knowing that he was going to probably go to the minors. And now Kelnick's in the minors, and he's crushing it. I mean, I, Jerry, I say to my, my buddy, I say, you know, he's carrying our AAA team. He, he, he texts me every morning and tells me Kelnick hit another home run. And, you know, we're, we're thinking Seattle's going to probably call him up again. I don't know if it means he's going to hit or not. It, it's really hard to know. Does, does Kelnick have anything more to learn at AAA? Is he helped by gaining confidence by smashing a home run off a pitcher that he's not going to face in the major leagues? I, I don't really know if that helps a player or not. Maybe he just needed to clear his head. Again, all he's really done in Seattle is strike out, but in the case of Rodriguez, this just seemed like a an opportunity where the Mariners realized, look, he's performed, he's acquitted himself much better in the first month than the stats show. He's getting a raw deal from the umpires. That's eventually going to smooth over. Let's stay the course with this guy. And not that I expected that the explosion was going to, you know, what, what he's done was going to happen. But man, as he turned into a star. And again, I don't know how we let Joe Sheehan get him in the fifth round. I mean, shame on the other 11 people who allowed that to happen. Uh, speaking of the other side of young players, your colleague Matthew Puglio noted at Yahoo Sports on Wednesday that Adley Rutschman at the time had 61 plate appearances, zero barrels, which is quite an accomplishment, actually. How concerned should fantasy managers be if they spent draft capital or fab capital to get what have been pretty paltry starts from Adley Rutschman so far? Yeah, you know, you hope that it's not another Matt Weeders case. Matt Weeders had an okay career, but when Weeders came into the majors, he was ballyhooed as just like, you know, yeah, he's not going to start the season in Baltimore, but you have to get him and he's worth stashing. And there's by the way, a great, um, a great Twitter thread. I know Rob Silver was part of it. Who another guy, you should listen to anything he writes, but there's some other people involved about how many stashes should you have in a league like TGFBI, like NFBC, where there's no, um, there's no injured reserve in those leagues. There's no IL spots. 
So it's like, is one stash, is that acceptable? Is two stashes go too far? With Rutschman, the catcher position is so gross right now. I actually did a, a shuffle up where I repriced all the catchers. It's like, it feels like there's like six or seven guys you want. And then after that, I mean, Cal, Cal Raleigh is the, uh, Raleigh is the, is one of the catchers in Seattle. He's hitting like 170. He's got a handful of home runs and he's like a top 25 catcher. He is rosterable in the two catcher format and he's hitting 170 or 165 or whatever it is. And he's only got like seven home runs. It's not like he's got, he's going to be like Mike Zanino was last year. He's another guy who's killing our team, by the way. In the case of Rutschman, I think you need to give him a little bit more time only because the bar to relevance of this position is so incredibly low. I passed on the opportunity to bid for George Kirby and instead made a cheap bid preemptively, betting on the come that Steven Strasburg will be back sooner than later. We're talking on Thursday afternoon, Scott. Strasburg's supposed to start tonight on the road against uh, Trevor Rogers, who's been struggling, Miami. What do you think we should be expecting from Steven Strasburg? I've called him Strasburg for many years because, because he just seems like somebody who needs a lot of maintenance, needs a lot of IL time, and Washington's not in the hunt at all. I just worry that it wouldn't take much for Strasburg to be either babied through starts or low pitch counts or you know load management. I, I'd feel so much better if he was on a team that was trying to win right now because I don't think Washington probably is. Um, of course, the talent, the skills are there. The, the talent is undeniable. So, And starting pitching is challenging enough that if I had Strasburg, I certainly would be excited because you can at least see the plausible upside with him. I just feel like Strasburg always – I used to joke that the, the two – used to be the joke about the, the uh, boat ownership, that the two great days of boat ownership was the day you bought the boat and the day you sold it. And I used to say that Strasburg was like that. You know, the, the two great days of Strasburg were the day you drafted them and the day you were finally able to trade them. And I always feel like he looks better in the rearview mirror or when he's approaching you than he actually does when, he, when he's sitting right next to you. Well, thanks for that vote of confidence. Uh, <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> the Angels fired Joe Madden after the Angels lost their 13th in a row. I think they set some kind of record or tied some kind of record for losing streaks. Not sure if it's the Angels alone or all of baseball, but what was your reaction when you heard that good old affable modern analytics favoring Joe Madden is out? Yeah, there's been a couple of firings. Again, for the ninth time, I'll mention Joe Sheen's name on this pod, a, a mutual friend of ours. He, he did a really good piece on firings. He, he's actually against it. He thinks if you're trying to, because both teams that fired their managers, you know, Girardi and Philly and Madden with the Angels, it's it's a case of they both think they can make the playoffs. It's expanded this year, and the Angels were, were doing pretty well. And then you know they haven't. You know, it's funny you mentioned how they knocked around Barrios. I think that's the last thing they've done right. All they've done is lose since then. And now, now it's like I almost just want to root for the losing streak. Not that I, I have anything against the Angels or their fans or anything. I, I do think it's stupid that they call them the Los Angeles Angels when they play in Anaheim. We all know that, but it's not like you know, I don't think LA is all in a tither over the Angels, even when they're good. But um, you yeah, Madden, I, the manager job is different now, right? It felt like managers, even like 10, 12 years ago, had a, a lot of autonomy. Remember in in Moneyball, where the idea that the the A's wanted to play a certain way, and then Art Howe's like, "Hey, well, you know, or at least the Philip Seymour Hoffman version of Art Howe." And man, do I miss Philip Seymour Hoffman, my all-time favorite actor? It's like, "Hey, Billy, the lineup card's mine." You know, now the lineup card is the GM's. The lineup card is the organization's. And I would argue that the manager, his job is more of a personality. He's like a, a manager, literally, is like a middle manager of a team now, right? I mean, I, he 
he doesn't have that much authority because it's it's very likely that the pitching bullpen patterns and the lineup patterns and the the shifting on the field, all that stuff is being called by somebody else, not by him. So what is Joe Matt? It, you, it's do they want? Do they think that the team? It's also you can't do much with player personnel turnover in the season. Do the Phillies think that the team will be more inspired with a different voice? Do the Angels think? I mean, this, this is something I would accept in a different sport, like an effort sport, like you know, in, in hockey or football. Maybe you think, okay, we get a different guy in here who has a different message. Maybe it motivates the guys. But baseball is a skill game. Yeah, I remember Jim Bouton used to say, you know, if you took a bunch of pep pills in baseball or steroids in baseball, you know, or maybe not steroids, but, you know, if you took certain things to increase your effort in baseball, you might just try harder and swing and miss. It's more of a craft and a skill than it is more of an effort sport versus, you know, something like hockey or, or football might be more effort sports. So I, I don't know. I, it's just weird. I've we're old enough now to see Joe Madden. He's gone from genius to savior in Chicago to now is maybe he's a dinosaur. You know, he's a guy from a different time. He did that crazy kooky thing this year with the walk with the bases loaded, and, which never made sense to me. I thought Joe Madden always kind of had a look at me style of managing. I take no pride in anybody losing their job or no joy in that, but. It just to me, I think, and again, Sheehan said this better than I did, but I think it just speaks to the shifting of what the manager job is right now and that teams who think they should be playoff teams when they're not on June 1st and they get impatient and they, they want to do something. They don't have another card to play. Maybe they don't have a prospect to call up or they, they don't have a trade they can make. So they feel like firing the manager is the only thing they can really do. And like Jim Bouton said in ball four, uh, when it came down to Marvin Milks, the incompetent general manager and Joel Schultz, the incompetent field manager, right. the question was, can Schultz fire Milks? And the answer is no. And that's why Joe Schultz got fired. So I think that's a, just a general truism, but I think it is getting more pronounced for exactly the reasons you say that the in-game decision-making is increasingly being handled by people like us, you know, who sit at our computers all day and, and parse out these little tiny edges that over time supposedly give us, uh, give the team a, a better chance. I'm not sure I buy it entirely because these are still people. I think the modern manager's job is kind of just keeping the guys together and loose, you know, keeping them sure. relaxed and stuff and settling any disputes that may, might arise over playing time. And you that's, know, why, that's why, why I think I like a playing? perfect, a perfect manager, although his team is going nowhere this year, but I think of somebody like Terry Francona, who's just got a, a really good pulse of the emotional makeup of his team. And, um, and man, you know, I, I still think back to like the last time Trevor Bauer pitched for the then Indians, now now Cleveland Guardians, and he had that meltdown, and he threw the ball into uh, into center field bleachers. I, I think Angel Hernandez called it a strike, actually. And Francona comes out to the mound, and Francona's a pretty together guy, and he's just like, you know, what the f were you thinking? What's wrong with you? You know, or, or something like that. And I always love Francona for that. And I think you know the. The Indians were wise to trade, and I think they traded him to your Reds, if I remember correctly. Yep. And then since then, you know, a lot's happened to Bauer, and he, he's had off the field issues. And, and I don't know if his career's over, but he certainly seems like kind of an unhinged individual, as far as I can tell. I don't know him personally, but to me, Terry Francona is a is a perfect manager. And I'm just also glad I, I just want to bookmark this for everybody. I, I'm glad that we've done this a lot before, where we've mentioned Ball Four and some of these podcasts and. I, it's still my favorite book of all time. Not my favorite baseball book, not my favorite sports book. It's my favorite book of all time. I think it's a wonderful story about human nature and about 
group dynamics and about you know in, in, intellectualism and anti-intellectualism and so many interesting things it gets into baseball at a time when there's expansion and and the game is changing obviously in the late 60s there's so much um social change going on i it's a wonderful book i also th there's somebody wrote a book on bouton's life a biography of bouton a couple of years ago that i read i've read it actually a couple of times it's, it's excellent so uh, Bouton was a complicated guy. wasn't a perfect guy by any means. I think a lot of times because he wrote such a great book and he had such an underdog mentality, it's easy to kind of lionize him. I mean, he had flaws. He wasn't the greatest husband and after uh, his first marriage and all that. And he did some things. He had a little bit of an ego. He could be kind of a diva at times. But I, I still think he's, a, to me, a heroic figure. I think he wrote a hell of a book. And um, I miss him. I, I was sad when he died a few years ago. And I, I would recommend not only a rereading of Ball Four just about once a year, but that biography of Jim Bouton was excellent too. The last edition, the ebook edition of Ball Four that I read, I always read it in spring training. And it's it was quite lengthy and it was uh, it took you right up to pretty much right before Jim Bouton died, not long before. And, uh, you know, his his life was not without its tragedies and, and difficulties, that's for sure. And uh, Ball Four also, uh, I have it at the top of my all-time reading list as well, in a three-way tie, I have to say, for first place. But um, yeah, definitely a book I read every year, one of the three books I, I try to read every single year. And um, I also uh, share your recommendation. Moving on, uh, through his first four starts, all in April, Tariq Skubal of the Tigers was one and two, had an ERA around four, a whip around one and a quarter. Since that time, however, 4-1, ERA, 0-76 whip, 50 strikeouts against seven walks. How for real do we think Tariq Skubal is? Oh, man, definitely for real, and I wish I had seen this. I mean, his strikeout rate last year, was excellent. And it was just a case of, okay, if his control gets a little bit better, now granted his control has significantly jumped up and also he's gotten the home run ball under control. He'll have 35 home runs last year. And this year he's, he's almost halfway to where he was last year in innings pitched. He's only allowed three. So could he have jumped? Could this jump have been projected? No, but could we have seen the upside of this guy? Yeah. It's interesting because he was shielded by some other pitchers who, who maybe have more, um, notable pedigrees on this on the staff. I'm I'm in Michigan. Um, I have a bunch of the Tiger offense, which is a total dead zone. But uh, I wish I had a Tariq Skubal. I think the walks and strikeouts also. I, I always say this point, but for as great as the modern metrics are, and the Statcast data is awesome, and, and obviously HQ has always been at the forefront of statistical analysis, and that stuff is fantastic. It's wonderful. But if you need a quick back of envelope down and dirty analysis of any pitcher and you only looked at the walks and strikeouts. And then again, this goes back to like, you know, Dom raid, you know, all the stuff that, that Ron came up with years ago. Um, that's a, that's going to take you to the right place so many times. And the fact that Scoobles walk strikeout rate is so outstanding. Um, the home runs probably a little bit fluky. I, I guess some regression will probably come there, but uh, he, he sure looks legitimate to me. I would, I would think, rest of the year ERA around three, a whip maybe 105, 110. I mean, it's going to be a little bit of give back, but I, I think he's going to be like a starting pitcher too the rest of the year, and I, I regret having him nowhere. After a sizzling start, Scott Juan Yepes has cooled considerably and has started fewer than half of the Cards games despite them not having as many options in the outfield as they'd probably like. How much should Yepes's winning fab bidders be concerned about his current bench status? Yeah, I mean, it shows that they're not 
they, they don't view him as an automatic starter. And um, this worries me for a couple of reasons. For one thing, I, I think it messes with a player where he goes on the field and they, they think, oh, if I don't get two hits today, I may not start tomorrow. Um, there's an interchangeability of their lineup. I'm not saying what they've done with Yepes is wrong, but um, it, it's interesting. I, I didn't get him anywhere, and I regretted that. And now that he's he's come back to earth, I'm like, okay, well, I want to think it, maybe it's confirmation bias. I want to think maybe I had the right approach all the time. The fact that if you can't count on a hitter, not counting the catchers, of course, but if you can't count on a field player to play the majority of the game, you don't know for sure he's going to play five or six games every week. If you're in a league where you have to make your starting decisions you know, once a week, it's really hard to trust a player like that. And before we go to Boons and Baines, Scott, I know you're a big hockey fan. I'm a big hockey fan of Stanley Cup playoff hockey, not the regular season, which I, uh, as everybody who knows me knows, I find unwatchable. But you get this late in the playoff rounds and all of a sudden hockey looks terrific, fast, lots of action end-to-end. It's just a, been a terrific Stanley Cup playoffs. Uh, we already have Colorado in the final from the western side, uh, the Rangers and the Lightning battling it out to go in. Uh, who do you like in the Rangers-Lightning series, first of all, and who do you like once one or the other of them gets up against Colorado? I think the Eastern Conference final goes seven. And I like Tampa Bay to win that series because I think it's actually this odd thing in hockey where if it gets to a game seven, I think there's actually a little bit of extra pressure on the home team. And if this home team doesn't play well in the first period, man, can that almost just choke the life out of the, out of the arena? I think of how the Bruins and the Blues were in their game seven for the finals a few years ago. I mean, I, I'm still shocked that the Bruins fired Bruce Cassidy, who all he did was win in Boston. And they have a team that's probably in transition now. I don't know who's going to want that job. But uh, that's neither here nor there. But I think the Eastern Conference final goes seven. I think Tampa Bay takes it. And I'm picking Colorado in the final. I want Colorado to win. I like almost everybody. I picked them to win before the playoffs started, which is, you know, they were the chalk. They were the heavy favorite. I have um, some interest in who wins the Conn Smythe. I have a, a small investment in Kale McCarr, who I think right now is the favorite. I have a small investment in Nathan McKinnon, who is uh, obviously a terrific player. But what I really like about Colorado, I'd be like, look, they're a winning team. They're a good team. They have stars. That's fine. But Joe Sackick, who is, um, I don't know if he's their GM or their president or just the guy who oversees hockey operations. I'm not sure what his title is. He obviously was a wonderful player, Hall of Fame player, a captain. And the class act that when they finally won that title for Ray Bork, he handed the cup to Bork, even though Sackick was the captain. And traditionally, that's the guy who skates around with the cup first. And he handed it to Bork, who was a you know one of my heroes. I grew up with him in New England. And he said, "No, nah, you you deserve this. You skate around with this." I just love Joe Sackick, but he, I keep coming back to a quote he had a few years ago, where he said, "Yes, you know we we need to be competitive. We want to be competitive. That's part of it, but we also have an obligation to be entertaining." And I think of a sport that was really in trouble. I thought back. 20 plus years ago when the best team was the New Jersey Devils and their whole, look, they were smart and I get it, but with optimization often comes collateral damage and they played a strategy where, okay, we want the other team to possess the puck and we're just trying to score off counterattack and we're going to try to choke all the life out of the game. I thought it was just about unwatchable. I get it. Mark Team Brodeur is, is fantastic goal. They have other really smart players on that team. They had good coaching and they won. But I don't think just because something works means it's justified. Like I look at what James Harden does in the NBA where he's, okay, I'm going to dribble the ball in stationary in place for 17 seconds. And then I'm going to 
either kick out to a, a do a pick and roll and kick out to somebody else, or I'm going to try to fool the official into thinking I've been fouled. James Harden breaks basketball in a way that hurts the game. I thought the New Jersey Devils broke hockey in a way that hurts the game. When I see a team like Colorado that wants to possess the puck and wants to play a beautiful style and sells the game as well as they do it, and look, it helps when you have a Nathan McKinnon or a Kale McCarr. You know, those guys are fantastic. But they, they have a bunch of other really good players, too. They have three lines who can score. Um, interestingly, they don't have a great goalie, which a lot of championship teams do. I want to see them coronated. I want to see McKinnon and McCarr skating around with a cop. I think McCarr will probably win the Norris Trophy. He obviously won the Hobie Baker a few years ago. They play hockey the way it should be played. And in that series with Edmonton, I know it didn't last long, but man, was that fun. Man, was that Edmonton uh, Calgary series fun. You know, we're, we're, we're finally breaking through, Patrick, where hockey isn't a 2 1 game anymore. And I think that's definitely to the advancement of the sport. So I, I think Colorado wins. I want them to win. And I don't think it will last that long. I think they'll win in five or six games. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Hockey HQ Radio every so often. Patrick David here with Scott Pianowski from Yahoo Sports. And Scott, as you know, I always like to wrap up these discussions by looking at our experts, Boons and Baines, for the rest of the season. Uh, Boons being guys you think are going to be helpful for the rest of the season. Baines, of course, not so helpful. Uh, let's start in the American League. Who's a batter who could be a boon? Well, my ethos is always on this to go as much quantity as I do quality. So I, I hope uh, I'm, I'm going to give you multiple choices on all these guys. We all know Jordan Alvarez is great, but I think he's like David Ortiz 2.0 great. I think he's like, as you said, he might be in the MVP chase right now. There's no way to pitch to him. He hits lefties. He hits righties. I think he's a first-round pick. I maybe should have taken him over Machado in that draft. MJ Melendez is getting catcher and DH run in, in Kansas City. He's not going to take Salvarez's job, but he plays a lot. And in a year where there's just no good catching, it feels like, I think he's playable in one-catcher formats and very playable in two-catcher formats. As much as this Detroit lineup depresses me, Jonathan Scope has really good hard-hit metrics. He's been comically unlucky in his batting average and in his slugging. So I think Jonathan Scope is somebody who was dropped in one of my leagues. We picked him up. I think he's a really good buy-low or a guy you can probably get off the waiver wire who will be useful the rest of the season. In the National League, who's a batter who could be a boon? I mentioned uh, Morell, Cromworth, and Fam earlier as guys I like, so I just want to kind of remind you that they're players that I'm bullish on. I think the story with Jerks and Profar is is mistold sometimes. I know he doesn't have very good batted ball metrics, and I know he's never going to be the star that he was expected to be eight or ten years ago, but he's drawing walks. He's got a positive OPS+. plus. He's batting leadoff for the Padres right now. He's hitting home runs, you know, a handful anyway. He steals a handful of bases. And he qualifies at three positions. That's a useful fantasy player. And, and again, I, I know when, when we go to baseball savant and you see all of his batted ball metrics pinned to the left, you're like, oh, God, this guy stinks. Well, you know, he's a, just accept that he does things that are useful. And maybe he's not a star, but he's a useful player. I think we can get something out of that. And I want to mention Lane Thomas in Washington, who I often call Logan Thomas, who's the tight end for the Washington football team. So, you know, they can fight over that first initial and last name, but. Uh, Thomas was really productive as the number two hitter for the Nats last year. Uh, this year, he got off to a poor start. He didn't have a job right away, but he's, he's had some relevance recently. I know he had a three-homer game, but I'm really, for the most part, interested in Thomas because he's going to hit ahead of Soto for a while, and I think maybe he could go back to being that productive player we saw at the end of last season. So you might get Thomas at the cheapest acquisition cost, and uh, if it doesn't work out, you can drop him and pick up the Washington tight end. 
over to the mound we go. Who's an American League pitcher who could be a boon? I like what you said about Holmes. I think he's the Yankee closer for the rest of the year. Um, interesting because they, they're so far ahead of the number with wins and stuff. They can kind of do whatever they want. But And even if he isn't closing, his wipeout stuff is going to play anywhere. Uh, Frembert Valdez doesn't have a great strikeout rate, but that ground ball rate ensures that he's going to be valuable. And if you look at what Diego Castillo has done recently, I know his overall season stats aren't great, but he's been really good for the last month, and he's starting to get saves in Seattle. Some of the saves will go to Seawald, too. But the thing with Castillo is that whatever was wrong with him in April, it seems like they fixed it because his numbers, strikeout numbers, ERA, everything the last month is fantastic. And now he's back near the end of the game in Seattle. So I think his seasonal numbers will distract you from a guy who's actually put it back together. And a National League pitcher who could be a a boon? Love relievers on winning teams. Uh, Daniel Hudson's the number two in line for saves with the Dodgers, but I maybe he could take the job away from Kimbrell. He certainly pitched better than him. And even if he doesn't, Hudson's going to get the secondary saves, a win here and there. He's going to smooth out your, your ratios. I think Daniel Hudson's a very rosterable player in just about any format. One of the great rules of, of ERA and WHIP, and I think Todd Zola came up with this, is that when ERA and WHIP don't tell the same story, WHIP is what you should follow. And that means you should go get Logan Webb, who's got a high ERA but a low whip right now. I think he's been unlucky, and that will smooth itself out as the season goes along. Let's go to the Baines now. These are players who are going to be disappointments for the rest of the season. Again, we'll start in the American League. Who's a batter who could be a Bane? You can roll the ball up to the plate, and Javi Baez will swing at it. And unfortunately, when he gets on base, as infrequently as that has been, he's not trying to run either. He's surrounded by, I, I know I did mention Scope earlier as a buy, but he's surrounded by a Detroit lineup that can't get out of its own way either. I'm, I'm just worried it's going to be a lost season for Baez. I'm also really done on Juan Moncada. You know, Gina Martinez, I'm a Red Sox guy. Um, I like the average, but the 458 BABIP, I mean, I don't, I don't care how much you're controlling your bats. That's just not going to, obviously not going to last. And he only has five home runs. I think you could maybe trade. It's not that I'd give away Martinez, but I think you could maybe trade him for more than he's worth right now. I would quietly. You don't say I'm looking to trade J.D. Martinez. Say you're looking to trade an outfielder and see if they come to Martinez. I think you might get more than uh, he's probably worth right now. In the National League, who's a batter who could be a bane? I'm not trying to make you feel sad or anything, but Tyler Stevenson, pretty average, decent slugging, but his expected stats on, on the uh, Savant page say 248 average. And 407 slugging is what he's earned. I just feel like he's over his head right now. If you have him, there's probably teams in your league that are really screwed a catcher. You're going to have to have another option if you trade Stevenson, of course. But I think I'd like to cash in. I'd like to lock in the profits on right now his average in slugging because I just don't think it's at all sustainable based on what he's really earned to this point. Back to the mound in the American League. Who's a pitcher who could be a bane? You know, I, I know Nathan Eovaldi, there are stats that frame him as being more valuable than his surface stats say, in part because some of the ballpark-adjusted stats will give him credit for pitching in Fenway, but he still has to pitch in Fenway. He's getting creamed on hard hit rate this year. I, I always think he's just been a little bit overrated. And you know, Robbie Ray, the question was after a Cy Young season, who does he become? I think he's gone back to the Robbie Ray we always kind of knew and I don't know that there's necessarily a market for him, but if I, if I rostered Robbie Ray, if he could get me one of those burrito starts where you get the double digit strikeouts, I would take him to market the next day. I do not trust Robbie Ray for the long term. And how about a national league pitcher or pitchers who could be a bane? 
I feel like we're all ganging up on Julio Urias. Um, I know there's been other people on this pod, for perhaps Derek Cardi and others who didn't trust them. Maybe Gene mentioned him too. But the ERA's cosmetic. Uh, the velocity is going the wrong way. The strikeouts aren't there. Isn't it funny too? When we talked a lot about Walker Bueller earlier, that that staff has been saved by the unheralded guys, right? Like the Tyler Andersons and the Tony Gonsolins. They've been great. I don't think Urias will be, you know, like absolutely torch your team or anything. But and I know that the people who li- listen in these, in these um, podcasts, you know, your baseball HQ listeners are sophisticated. They're smart. They know that Julio Julio Urias has been lucky. They know he hasn't pitched as well as his opponents that say. So I. If you're a smart guy, you probably play in leagues with other smart guys or other smart girls. And so it, you may, it may be hard to find somebody who believes in Urias. But, man, if he just gave me a selling window, I would sure try to take advantage of it. And although the Phillies have a very talented pitching staff, I think everybody likes Nola, everybody likes Wheeler, they have the worst defense in baseball, and it's not even close. And then when it comes to things like defense, I don't care who has the 13th best defense, the 17th best defense, the 11th best defense. Tell me who's really good. Like the Cardinals last year won five gold gloves. Tell me who's really bad. Like this Phillies team is far and away by, and I know defensive metrics come with skepticism, but they're not even close. The worst defense in baseball. So I I think if you're roster Nola or Wheeler, you're just going to have to deal with the fact that they can't strike everybody out. And when they put the ball in play, it's, it's a really difficult time turning that into an out. I don't think they're going to be able to fix that. I, so it's going to be a case of the end of the year. We're going to be like, yeah, you know, Aaron Nola's ERA should be a lot lower, but part of that unluckiness is the defense talking. Scott Pianowski's Boons, Jordan Alvarez of Houston, MJ Melendez of Kansas City, Jonathan Scope of Detroit, Jurickson Profar of San Diego, Lane Thomas of Washington, uh, Clay Holmes of the Yankees, Framber Valdez in Houston, Diego Castillo in Seattle, Daniel Hudson of the Dodgers, Logan Webb of the Giants. His Baines, Javier Baez of Detroit, Juan Moncada, in Chicago, J.D. Martinez in Boston, uh, Tyler Stevenson in Cincinnati, Nathan Eovaldi in Boston, Robbie Ray of Seattle, and Julio Urias, as well as the entire Philadelphia staff, based on the defense, which seems justifiable to me. Uh, remind uh, our listeners where they can keep up with Scott Pianowski. Sure. Uh, most of my work is at Yahoo Sports, where I've been proud to be of the employee since 2008. Follow me on Twitter at Scott underscore Pianowski, and I'm also part of a premium podcast it's very reasonably priced with our mutual friend michael salfino called the breakfast table you can find that on twitter as well so uh, i'm on twitter all the time and as this podcast showed i mean you want to talk i love to talk baseball but we can talk hockey we can talk music we can talk golf whatever you want um you know you and i are always talking i feel like we're always having a musical discussion on email or on twitter so i I love to talk about music too so it's all in play come tweet at me and uh, let's have a conversation a little diss on your uh, column about the Carpenters. Oh, I, I wasn't thinking? dissing it. I wasn't dissing the Carpenters. I, I maybe I didn't say it very well, but I, I just think Karen Carpenter is based on you know the shape of her life and the tone of her voice. I just I just feel like she has a way just to make me. You know, I I, I guess the young people today would say she gives me all the feels. You know, but um, I listen to a lot of Carpenter songs, and I feel sad for a woman who should have lived a long life and for reasons I think that really weren't completely in her control didn't and it just it still kind of breaks my heart I think she's got the voice of an angel I that, that, that is not my my primary musical taste is not the easy listening 70s although I do like some soft rock I like some some America some Carly Simon stuff like that I'm more of a rock and roll kid an alternative kid a new wave kid but I, you know 
I, I still like the, the Carpenter's catalog. And then if, if I, if it seemed to imply any diss of Karen Carpenter, that was just, you know, me not putting my words together. Right. Because I have tremendous admiration for her voice and great sadness for how her life ended. Boy, uh, I, I'll, uh, amen to both of those ideas. I think I've been listening to and writing about music since the early seventies, I'd say, well, maybe mid seventies. And to this day, she has the best singing voice of any woman in, in popular music that I've ever heard. And that's, I think that's high praise because there's lots of great singers in popular music and her voice was just completely unique that the contralto kind oh, it's of fantastic uh, i and i, I love i just love female vocalists period i mean this morning i was listening to a lot of 90s music um with female vocalists i listened to some garbage with shirley manson's out the front of garbage if you're not familiar with them listen to a song like special or which is great and then that segued into letters to cleo covering the Nicolo song cruel to be kind which is one of my favorite songs and one of my favorite covers and then an alanis morissette song came on and I know she's not everybody's cup of tea, but I still think Jagged Little Pill was a watershed album. And um, I always listen to The Breeders or Throwing Muses, any band with Tanya Donnelly in it. Um, a huge fan of of music you know, fronted by women. I mean, men can rock too, but um, there's just something about a female vocalist and um, a lot of great alternative female vocalists really do it for me. Scott, this has been as exciting and interesting as I hoped it would be. Thanks very much for helping us out. I hope we get to do it at least once more during the season. I would love that, Patrick. I just hope uh, maybe some of the advice this time is a little bit better than what I gave up before the season. But uh, it's always just uh, wonderful and a joy to talk to you. And I have great respect for the, the show. I listen to it just about every week. So keep doing what you're doing, my friend. Scott Pianowski joins us from Yahoo Sports. A quick break here, then we're back with our HQ commentaries, the frequent flyer and extra innings coming up on Baseball HQ Radio. But I've been mentioning some of the great stuff I find at BaseballHQ.com, and I think I might have saved the best for last. On the site front page, there's a graphic announcing First Pitch Arizona, which will take place in Phoenix this November 3rd through the 6th. It's a great time. You can join a bunch of people who love fantasy baseball as much as you do, attending expert seminars, doing on-site drafting, going to see some of the top prospects in the Arizona Fall League, maybe playing a little poker if you like that sort of thing, and generally hanging out, not shoveling snow off your driveway, or driving down to the store to get a quart of milk. So plan now. I have it on good authority that Brent and Ray are already planning some big early bird discounts and coupons you'll be able to use to get one of them to buy you a beverage of your choice. Beer or soda only, no cash value. Actually, truth be told, no beverage coupons will be distributed. That was a joke. First Pitch Arizona, this year, let's see you there. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick Abbott here. Time now for our regular commentaries. My extra innings comment is coming up, and leading off, it's the Frequent Flyer, a commentary on players who might be available in your free agent pool and who have the potential to get enough playing time and production to make them worth a spot on your roster. Here with a look at Minnesota second baseman Spencer Steer is Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. He's an intriguing infielder who is rising steadily through the Minnesota Twins organization, according to Baseball HQ's 2022 Minor League Baseball Analyst. In fact, 24-year-old Minnesota Twins second baseman Spencer Steer, less than two weeks after being promoted to AAA on May 23rd, 
promptly belted three home runs in one game. Intrigued? For those of you keeping score at home, Steer now has seven home runs in only 15 games at AAA St. Paul, on top of eight home runs in 35 games at AA Wichita in 2022. Not bad for a second baseman who was also adept at playing third base and shortstop proficiently on a regular basis. So, he's both intriguing and versatile. Not a bad combination. And as the minor league baseball analyst pointed out on page 65, Steer is rising steadily through the Minnesota Twin system. Drafted in the third round in 2019, 90th overall, Steer has nimbly matriculated almost the whole Twins minor league system in only 224 games, batting 272 with 43 home runs and an 866 OPS in just two full professional seasons plus 2022. Impressive. Even so, the Twins already have a lot, perhaps even an overabundance of infield defensive depth, a very, very nice problem to have. So playing time opportunities in Minnesota may be limited in 2022. That's why 24-year-old Minnesota Twins second baseman Spencer Steer, like all of our frequent flyers, should be considered to be a long shot, who may be worth a flyer if he is still available in your league. Nevertheless, the numbers so far speak for themselves. In 200 at-bats in 2022, through two levels of the minors, Steer is batting 300 with a robust 387 on-base percentage and a whopping 1,007 OPS, not to mention those 15 home runs. In fact, Steer's seven home runs at AAA St. Paul currently leads the team, while remember, he's only played 15 games for the Saints. Wow. A closer look shows that Steer's career minor league 80% contact rate, which measures the batter's ability to get wood on the ball and hit it into the field to play, places him among baseball's best hitters, according to the tools and metrics available to you at BaseballHQ.com. So he's intriguing and versatile, can play second, short, and third proficiently, plus hit for power and average. Looks like the sky's the limit for 24-year-old Minnesota Twins second baseman, Spencer Steer is our frequent flyer for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky at BaseballHQ.com. Alex Becky is a fantasy baseball analyst at BaseballHQ.com and has his frequent flyer comment here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for Extra Innings, my comment on baseball and fantasy baseball. And this week, I want to conclude the commentary I started last week about the five trading archetypes in fantasy baseball and how they react to trade possibilities. By way of a refresher, the five trading archetypes are Monty Hall. This is the owner who deals a lot, not always wisely, and prefers big deals with lots of players and prominent names. Greg Norman is the guy who will make a trade only when he will win it outright. He's constantly moving through the currents of the league, looking for signs of distress and smelling for blood in the water. Warren Buffett is a rational actor, an owner who will listen carefully to all the offers he receives and will decide whether to deal based on a logical, painstaking evaluation of the impacts of the deal. Shirley Ellis will make a deal, but only if the names and or the draft day salaries or draft slots are pretty close to equal. And Mr. Hurd. He'll never initiate a trade offer and seldom respond to one. Now, this week, I want to explain how the five trading archetypes interact with each other and comment on their likelihood of making a deal. 
And as I promised last week, I'll also explain the sources of the archetype's names, if you're keeping score at home. Note that I don't bother with Mr. Hurd's interactions because they're all extremely unlikely. Then there's one exception, and I'll get to that in a minute. Actually, probably several minutes. So let's start with Monty Hall. A Monty Hall dealing with another Monty Hall is pretty unlikely. Monty Halls are more interested in the excitement of the deal, not actually making one. Monty Hall with Greg Norman, also not too great. Greg Norman only wants one-sided deals that favor himself. He can and will sometimes take advantage of Monty Hall's compulsion to make deals to fleece poor old Monty. Monty Hall with Warren Buffett, also unlikely. Warren Buffett's tend to deplore the time-wasting involved with Monty's extremely complicated deals. And Monty Hall with Shirley Ellis is difficult because Monty Hall wants to keep piling names into the deal, but as the deal gets bigger, Shirley Ellis can't easily assess the total name value involved. Now to Greg Norman. A Greg Norman trading with another Greg Norman? Impossible. Two managers can't swap each other a dollar for two quarters and two dimes. Greg Norman with Warren Buffett is possible, but it's not easy. In their eagerness to get the better of surface values, some Greg Normans might miss the category implications of the deal. Warren Buffett should not detail the category advantages he expects to get, because Greg Norman is completely self-interested and enough to pay attention and cancel the deal. Greg Norman with Shirley Ellis is possible if Greg Norman can offer an established name player in the deal, especially if he's pursuing rising prospects. Many Shirley Ellis's nowadays, however, are increasingly aware of the name value of top prospects. Earlier this year, many Shirley Ellis's who had Adley Rutschman would treat him as a name, requiring equivalent name status players in return. In fact, she'll probably want a name who's out of proportion with any prospects. Uh, prospects. Now on to Warren Buffett. A Warren Buffett with another Warren Buffett is the best trading matchup. Two Warren Buffetts can make a deal in two or three emails or a couple of minutes on the phone. A major impediment is that Warren Buffetts, because they are fine players, are often competing in the overall standings, and they don't want to help the other Warren Buffett gain ground. But two Warren Buffetts who are separated in the overall standings, or in a keeper league where one Warren Buffett is going for it while the other is rebuilding, they make great deal partners. Warren Buffett with Shirley Ellis? This is a trade combination highly likely to make deals. Warren Buffett is often willing to trade a name player for a lesser player to gain a strategic advantage in the categories. Shirley Ellis, of course, ignores category considerations entirely, and she'll be happy to win the trade on names alone, even at the cost of adding to an already useless surplus or dealing away a needed strength in a tight category. This interaction offers enormous potential gains for the Warren Buffetts. And finally, moving to Shirley Ellis. Two Shirley Ellises can do a deal because both of them will be willing to ignore the strategic implications that can usually bog down a deal so long as those names balance out. And if you were wondering about Mr. Hurd, the likelihood of him trading with Monty Hall, Greg Norman, Warren Buffett, or Shirley Ellis are pretty near impossible because Mr. Hurd never starts a deal and seldom responds to an offer. And finally, there's the Mr. Hurd deal with another Mr. Hurd. This is not only impossible, but inconceivable, 
as these are two owners standing on opposite sides of a door on which neither of them will knock. Of course, many or even most owners combine aspects of these archetypes. The trick is trying to figure out what will reach any owner on a gut level. Is it names? Is it balance? Is it categories? Is it the need to win the trade? It makes no sense to offer a brilliantly conceived deal in which you offer a middle value player and ask for a better player when you're dealing with a Shirley Ellis. As well, it makes just as little sense to offer a name deal to a Warren Buffett if the categories don't make sense. A big part of doing this well is listening to the owners with whom you want to deal. And by listening, I also include carefully reading any emails you receive or message board communications that you read. A basic tenet of salesmanship is having empathy for your client. Develop that and you'll be better able to tailor your offers and follow-up approaches and enjoy greater success in trading in your leagues. Now, before I go, as promised, the origins of the type names. Monty Hall, if you're old enough to remember or might have seen him on game show TV, was the host of the game show Let's Make a Deal back in the 60s. People tried to get Monty's attention from the crowd, and he'd get them involved in a series of crazy trades, like giving them 500 bucks and then offering them to give it back for what's behind door number three. And eventually it could end with the person winning a car or a pair of billy goats. Monty Hall was from Winnipeg, Manitoba. He was the color man on radio broadcasts of the New York Rangers during the 1959-60 season in a very long career in broadcasting in both Canada and the United States. He was appointed an officer of the Order of Canada, a very high distinction in this country, for his humanitarian and philanthropic work. When the award was given, the joke was that he offered to trade it. Greg Norman is a golfer. He was known as the Shark and was famous primarily for losing major tournaments in the last round. He's now famous, or notorious depending on your point of view, as the person running the new golf tour being bankrolled by the Saudis and played in by a bunch of has-beens plus Dustin Johnson. Shirley Ellis was an American soul singer who co-wrote and performed a song called The Name Game, a novelty hit in 1965. Here's a warning. Don't sing this one about Buck Showalter. Warren Buffett is one of the most famous investors in history, known for seeing value in assets where others don't, and then buying those assets, usually buying low. His net worth, which is the result of his long holding in the conglomerate Berkshire Hathaway, is supposed to be more than $120 billion, easily in the top 10 of the world's wealthiest people. I think Mr. Buffett would be an excellent fantasy baseball owner. And finally, Mr. Hurd was a character on the old and sadly underappreciated Bob Newhart show, the one in which Newhart played a Chicago psychologist. One of Bob's patients was Mr. Hurd, played by an actor named Oliver Clark. He's a pathetically shy salesman whose failure-prone approach to -to door-to-door sales was to just stand there in front of a closed door for five minutes without knocking or ringing and then leaving when nobody came. As I said earlier, most fantasy managers are Mr. Hurd's. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick David of BaseballHQ.com. I have my extra innings commentary here on Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, June the 10th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 22 of the 2022 fantasy baseball season. 
I also want to thank our guest expert for this Friday Full Edition, Scott Pianowski from Yahoo Sports. Scott is one of the smartest and most capable analysts and writers in this game, and one of its genuinely good guys. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Ray Murphy. Our frequent flyer commentator was Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. And I'm Patrick Davitt, your extra innings commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I sure hope to see you on those BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also, remember you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at Baseball HQ. You can also follow my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio. Take a second to go to Apple Podcasts, Pocket Cast, Google Podcasts, wherever you catch your pods, and leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and a rating. It really does help us find new listeners, and new listeners help us keep the podcast going. If your pod getter of choice doesn't find Baseball HQ Radio, let us know about that or anything else on your mind by emailing to bhqradio at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next Friday with another Friday Full Edition featuring an expert interview with Ariel Cohen from Fangraphs and the Beat the Shift podcast, plus all the usual news analysis and Baseball HQ commentaries. That's Ariel Cohen on next Friday's Full Edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. Talk with you again on Friday, and for now, so long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators, or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.